Hey guys, what's up? It is week 249. Let's hop right into this. The first one up is from Arrow Video, and this is 1982's Deadly Games. Now, this this cover art was made for this uh, release, but this is the one I remember, the uh, insert. I, and I'm pretty sure um, the reversible, anybody that's seen this movie or seen it around back in the 80s will remember that with the uh, the game, the dice on there, the bloody dice. Fairly memorable cover. Um, this one, I don't ever think it had a proper DVD release. Um, I think it was kind of one of these deals that was stuck on VHS. I'd never actually seen it myself. The cover was very familiar to me. So yeah, um, this is, like I said, it is a slasher film, but it's not in the vein of like a Friday 13th or anything like that. It has a lot of like thriller elements and everything. So the opening of the movie, it starts off, uh, it grabs your attention right away. There's a, a woman kind of like talking to one of her friends on the phone. And, and of course she strips down nude um, right after she receives like a really creepy phone call. And you're just like, okay, what, whatever. But uh, she shortly uh, killed shortly after that and kind of a really uh, a creepy death it involves a window and everything. I thought it was fairly well done. Um, after that, we have um, kind of a, the police, uh, the police guy, chief's on the case, the police officer, and he runs into this young girl that he believes is a reporter. Turns out it is the deceased sister. Also, I believe she is a reporter still. So uh, they don't really necessarily hit it off, and we're kind of introduced to a bunch of characters that are around the town that grew up with this uh, woman who has passed, and the reporter's sister, or supposed reporter's sister. So we follow them around a lot and all the people they're involved with. Uh, one of their boyfriends is Dick Buckus, which is fun to see. He's really charming in this movie. Um, there's an elongated football scene. We can obviously guess that that's probably because Dick Buckus is in here. So there's like a long scene where they're all playing football and all the girls are watching on the sidelines, all the female characters. And uh, one thing this film does a little bit different than a lot of the other kind of films of the time, the slashers, the thrillers, is it, it focuses a lot on a lot of the female characters. Um, and and like as in so like they have a lot of dialogue a lot of like comedic beats amongst each other and they develop their characters fairly well they seem to be a little bit more of the focus for a long period of the film um it does take a while for some of them to start being picked off here and there um and the deaths aren't uh, anything uh, super elaborate. They're not like the most graphic or amazing kills in any... When people talk of slashers, they talk of kills, they talk of nudity, they talk of these kind of deals, and they talk of the killer. Um, this movie really, it's a little bit more, like I said, on the thriller kind of oriented side. But there is a couple kind of grotesque murders. Steve Railsback is also in the film. And Steve Railsback is a strange actor. And he's a strange, uh, he's a strange character in here too. He is such a bizarrely cast character in every movie I've ever seen him in. I just don't know how I feel quite about Steve Railsback. I know that he has some uh, famous uh, performances like Manson and the Helter Skelter and all that kind of stuff, but I mostly know him from uh, Armed and Dangerous popping up in that and uh, a couple of the uh, Life Force. He's just always so alligator too. Um, uh, scissors. So he's always this, this strange character. And this one, he's no different. He's a ex-Vietnam vet with a lot of mental problems and he's best friends with the sheriff and everything like that. And the sheriff is the main love interest of our character. All these characters Characters are like trying to sleep with each other's friends, so there's a lot of high drama in that aspect. Um, the, the scenes that do stand out of the opening, that opening I think was very impressively well done. And there's a good scene where the killer kind of is like solid solidifying to himself. I'm sorry, I spoiled it was a male. Sorry about that, but usually. I don't know. It's about 50-50, so sorry. But uh, he's, he's, he's there talking, and I don't want to spoil who he is, but like just going on and on about initially what happened and why he's the way he is. And I thought that was a fairly well shot scene, how it pulls back on him and it, the location he's in. And the, the finale takes place in a really nice location too. So I, I feel like that is all the stuff that has good uh, going for it. Well, like I said, Dick Buckus is fairly, um, uh, 
interesting and funny in the film. He has a lot of screen presence. I didn't even register that was him right away. Um, and another thing I did like about the movie is the lead female in here, they give her a chance to be funny. She's a goofy, zany character, but she's also the the like the love interest of someone. So it's just uh, you rarely see a female character get to flex her funny bone. You know what I mean? It's so often or not that you're either kind of like shoehorned in as the funny girl or the pretty girl, and you can't really be both. So it was nice to see that this character got, or this actress got to do a little bit of both. And I thought her character was a little bit different than a lot of the other characters um, that I've seen in these types of movies. As far as the special features are concerned, there is a hysteria continues pod i'm in a commentary on here they run a podcast that covers slash movies they're very good at their jobs or their their uh, hobbies or whatever you want to call it um and snooty's a shit a brand new interview with actor jer ray mansfield and she has a pretty interesting story she's one of the actresses in the film and how she got involved with it and how she eventually was uh kind of uh helped with this production company and all this kind of stuff like that which is very cool interesting stuff practical magic a brand new interview with special effects and stunt core uh coordinator uh john eggett um and we have an exclusive image gallery feature never seen seen production photos and promotional material original trailer original who fell asleep screenplay uh so yeah had a different name as well and the deadly games kind of aspect comes into it that uh, a couple of the characters are always playing these board game um which is kind of like uh it's homemade but it, it, they do have a board game similar to it now with like frankenstein and the mummy on it and everything like that so that's kind of cool and uh, obviously the games are going to come into real life and everything. But anyways, um, Deadly Games. Um, I know that this isn't the most popular slasher film ever made, but it's not absolutely horrible. I, I did enjoy my time with it. It looks spectacular. It looks and sounds great. Kind of like super impressed by Arrow's uh, presentation of this movie. But if you're a slasher completist or it's this one you've seen and you want to revisit, uh, check it out. Um, uh, you could do worse in this department, I would say. Okay, the next one is from On Earth Films. And uh, yeah, you really can't go wrong with the On Earth Classics line. And this is Permutos, uh, Lord of the of the Fallen Angel. It used to, I believe, be called Lord of the Dead or something like that. I think this is this is a little bit of an updated, different version. Um, so the original version um, that I saw that was released in the States was like an English dub. This is actually directed by Olaf Edenbach. He's a German director, did a lot of German splatter films, started with the SOB movies like Black Past and Burning Moon. Uh, pretty memorable, crazy movies. I enjoy them. He also did stuff like Beyond the Limits and No Reason, with, uh, which on Earth also put out. So he's like uh, one of the kings of splatter, especially from the German uh, the German heyday. Him and uh, like Andrew Snosh are like the two big names that come to mind. Uh, I think Timo Ross, is he German as well? So I'm thinking these kind of guys. But uh, Premutos is like one of the big splatter films. It, it's kind of like a splatter classic made in the late 90s and when it got released in the states they did an english dub which i think was actually done by like the jr bookwalter kind of and his group and everything like that and it was done in this overly comedic comical way similar to zombie 90 by andrew schnoz and i i just remember the movie being completely bonkers and batshit crazy and uh i, I always did want to see it in its original german uh version which this is on here so before I get into it, this this is an altered version from the original version that we all saw. And even if you saw the original German version. So this has three versions on here. The new version is the remastered one. It looks really good for what it is. I mean, this movie, I believe, was shot on what? 16mm, uh, uh, I would say. It's not It's not obviously SOB, and it's not like the best film. So it's a very low-budget film. Um, so like it's been remastered. It looks really solid for what it is. But there's different credits and, and stuff like that. And there's some different like titles and everything that kind of change it around. Some animated sequences that make it a little bit 
longer. Um, not too distracting, and I, I kind of didn't mind them. I don't know which I prefer, to be honest. You know, uh, some of that is nostalgia playing into the fact that you like the old stuff. But there's also included on here is the original uh, versions of Premudos, but it's in standard def, um, the German and the English dub. So if you if you wanted those on there, they are there. Um, and there's other features as well, like making of Olaf Hiddenbach early years. So let me get into the actual movie itself. <laughs> So, like, I, and I don't want to hype this up, and I'm not trying to hype this up for you, and it's not as good as these two movies, but, like, when you think Splatter, you have, like, 87, um, some of the big hits, like Evil Dead 2, and then later you have Dead Alive in 92, and, like, the late 90s, like, oh, oh, this guy Olaf Edenbach, he had made his Splatter films with, like, Burning Moon and Black Pass, and I believe probably a couple others in there, maybe not, and he came in just this big, epic, crazy Splatter movie that has, goes over, like, different like timelines and time periods it's like 10 15 different time periods in here so we're like introduced to this book that is like the book of the dead i guess and all <laughs> just the as lamest terms and um essentially there's also an ancestor that you're kind of told about like and this ancestor has the power to bring back the dead like it's Permutos is put into like ancestor whatever in human form and it goes down the line and and it, over time in the movie in the very beginning we see a lot of this like time frames like we go back to like uh jesus christ times before that we see all these crazy battles and violent gory detail and we always have this character who's possessed because once he's like killed or, or hurt really bad he kind of like turns into this monster and he has to be dealt with so now we're in modern timelines and this character i believe it's actually played by olaf Edenbach in here uh he's here of course and um the his father has found the book so he puts the book and all like the weird chemicals that uh one of the character of the past people was experimenting on trying to bring back the dead and everything like that and essentially all hell's gonna break loose because now we have that like that person's lineage and the book and it's all together and of course we're gonna have this giant zombie demon outbreak in the last 30 40 minutes of the movie this movie runs a little long it's like an hour and like 45 minutes it's like i said it is a gore epic um, and like people would ask like, what are gore epics? I would be like evil dead Two, dead alive. But these are like even lesser budget than that. But like the ambition in this movie, it, it must be like respected. And I, I respect the hell out of this. I like this movie. This movie is a blast. I've, I've always had a, a fondness for it. And, uh, I mean the, the, the dialogue in here is still cheesy. Like if you miss, like the, you want the comedy from the English, there is still comedy. It's still goofy movie. Um, but just like some of the gore stuff that absolutely ha that happens is just insane. Like uh, at one point, just for no reason, um, they, they uh, had found like the old like uh, necromancer, the guy who's trying to bring back the dead from a past with a book, and he had like all these experimental like you know elixirs and shit. So they were buried there, and like the at one point, one of the elixirs gets tossed outside, and we are introduced briefly to this bum who just uh, is wandering the streets, and he picks one up and he decides to drink it, and of course, a la boom head explodes in fact every time you see a bunch of gore clips or, or like uh that head trauma video you used to be on youtube of exploding heads and shit i feel like half of those exploding heads came from Premudos. like they literally do like there's heads exploding all the freaking time and just like gnarly gore effects it, it's a really fun insane movie and there's a lot of bizarre over-the-top characters in here as well so like the main characters are said besides like olaf Idenbach, who is gonna be like that main demon eventually are um a guy who is just 
an unhappy relationship. His wife constantly beats him up. She's absolutely treats him like shit. Um, this gun enthusiast, um, who's Olaf Edenbach's father, who's just completely bonkers and hilarious and probably the best character in the movie. His wife, um, some of the other, other friends that they have there. Um, there's like a, 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 a like a lo- a love there that's like on like like love that was never followed through with. Uh, the guy who's married and another woman, and they obviously long for each other. But at the end, it turns into kind of like a zombie siege movie. Uh, there's just ridiculous shit in here, like them wandering, zombies wandering the bar and attacking people. So if like you're like, I kind of just want like a gore epic. Um, it's very metal too. Like if that makes any sense, like just like going back in the medieval times and all these different time frames and like. Uh, it just legitimately is like the perfect kind of metal epic cheap gore fest and and it's nice to see it on blu-ray finally honestly this is one that i think that you know like it's weird for like i i think people have been watching movies a very long time Sometimes you forget that not everybody's been watching this shit as long as you or and there's people older than me have been watching twice as long and they know so much more. So when I, I mention a movie that I just discovered, they're probably like, oh, who gives a shit? Everybody's seen that, right? But really, they haven't. Like, so uh, seeing Permitos get a, a wide release on Blu-ray, it's nice. And, and to see people discover this kind of movie. And, and like, I know Burning Moon had a release a bit ago from Intervision. Be nice to see Burning Moon get, get uh, another kind of release and everything like that. Because, like I said, like, people forget this stuff's out there. Like, if it ain't on Blu-ray or if it ain't streaming, it, it doesn't really exist to 95% of people watching movies. Like, that's why you, everybody sees these posts in groups that says, hey, I just saw this obscure movie Pumpkinhead. It, just because it popped up on Shutter or Netflix and everybody's like, half the people are like, what do you, what, obscure Pumpkinhead? Everybody's seen Pumpkinhead, right? That's like that's like a, a household name for us, but it's really not for most people. And I doubt Permutos is, is, of course, the extreme gore fans and the on Earth boys and, and girls. Everybody knows Permutos. You should. Um, but a lot of people probably haven't checked this one out. So if you're into like the low budget extreme gore movies, this is the top of the heap, to be honest. And if you like them goofy too, like Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi, in, in that vein. Of course, it is grosser. I don't know. It may not be grosser than Peter Jackson or, or at points early Peter Jackson, but check this one out. Um, I, I enjoy the hell out of it. It's a freaking two disc extended director's cut in here. And like I said, if you want, you can watch the uh, the regular version as well. But it's not it's not um, remastered or anything like that. Um, the second disc is a soundtrack, and the soundtrack's pretty fun, pretty memorable. Um, yeah, and, and like. The original, I wish I, I could pull out the original DVD. I can't remember who put that out. If it was, um, it, I feel like it was like a, maybe um, video out, somebody like that. I do have it sitting here. And the cover was completely different from this. It didn't have like the heavy metal kind of style stuff in there. It looked a little bit more like this. I, I used to have a um, AWE release too. They put this one out years back. I, I probably took it off the shelf when, when I was kind of condensing it and boxed it up, but now I, I don't need the other disc out either because I have this new nice Blu-ray from On Earth Films, which I would recommend. And I'm really happy with what On Earth's been doing lately. This classic line is definitely something that uh, I'm really happy because uh, they're putting out like Untold Story and stuff and, and Tokyo Decadence, which is a movie I wanted to see for years. And also, like uh, some of these movies, a lot of people won't touch. Like If you look at On Earth's catalog... <laughs> Like, I know that, like, they, a lot of other companies pick up movies that everybody wants and it sees and stuff, but On Earth is picking up a lot of shit that people don't want to touch. Like, Serbian film, like, nobody wanted to fucking release that, um... And I'm glad they do release this stuff. I mean, so uh, there's some on-earth love for you. Anyways, Prometheus, uh, The Fallen Angel, 
He is the, what, the angel after Jesus, or after Lucifer that fell, Jesus, after Lucifer, but, uh, or is he before, the first angel? Yeah, he's before, I don't know what the, the fucking history of Permudos is, but they explain everything in gory detail in the movie and his backstory. There's a lot of exposition of gore and, and backlines in this background and everything. So check it out, uh, gore epic, Permudos, uh, The Fallen Angel by Olaf Inbach, the uh, premier German splatter director. Okay, we're going to dive into that second part of the Santo box sets, um, the Silver Mass Santo. And the first one um, on this, this if you guys don't know, if you weren't here last week, this is an eight-four-disc, uh, eight-movie Blu-ray set of Santo movies. Uh, Santo is a Mexican wrestler who became kind of like a, a pop culture icon due to his wrestling, his films, his comic books, and everything like that. So the first one we're going to talk about on here is Santo versus the Riders of Terror from 1970. And hey, I know somebody just asked about uh, when the weekly westerns coming back and technically this could be a weekly western because this is a freaking western so it's a really fun idea to think that santo is in like the old west times and he's even he's still wrestling and shit um so basically the plot of this one sounds super exploitative <laughs> like it's pretty crazy so essentially what we have here is a group of lepers that escape from uh, a hospital because obviously they don't like, you know, basically not living a life, being tied up there because they're contagious and there's not many uh, much cures for them and everything like that treatment. So they, uh, about five or six lepers escape and they they do a small crime spree to kind of get themselves steady, to get some food and everything like that. And they run to the mountains and kind of hide out. Um, uh, Santo is called to help the situation. The sheriff's having trouble keeping the townsfolk kind of calm down. There's a group of uh, kind of asshole outlaws that are also involved uh, with the town and the politics and everything. They start kind of causing a ruckus, and they're led by this big old jerk, and he says, well, all these uh, these lepers are going to destroy everything, because every time they rob a house, they burn down the house, because everything... So these criminals, being you know uh, opportunists, decide to kind of uh, start robbing people and try to blame it on the lepers. They start killing people then they actually make a deal with the lepers themselves and they say we'll give you half you just kind of have to show up with us and show your face so people just will assume it's you guys doing all this crime so santo catches on pretty quick and um not that quick but he catches on because it's santo and he's gonna he's gonna figure it out but yeah uh so anyways there there's some actually some good fight scenes i guess santo has a good wrestling battle with this in, in the typical fashion like any of these movies even a lot of the shaw brothers will do it. it's like for if anybody can beat this bruiser you'll win the 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 jackpot and of course he fights this big guy who beats everybody up and that's kind of fun in this wrestling match and of course he he kind of has these fights with uh the, some of the bad guys and assholes but before long we realize that really the leopards aren't bad people they're they're kind of misunderstood and they have a horrible time anyways and we get some of the backstory on them and santo must face off against the criminals the leopards end up coming around and we have that kind of deal um this one i really enjoyed this is probably my second favorite santo movie to be honest after the one that i mentioned last week with all the monsters in it which is vague when you talk about santo because they all have a lot of monsters in them uh yeah but uh, it, it's rather enjoyable it's really fun and it's different too for a santo movie i'd really recommend riders of terror santo and the first riders of terror i will mention that um like the movie doesn't have any like fragmenting like you know what i'm talking about like you'll see like like pixelation and stuff but i did notice like uh maybe an authoring issue just for like half a second where like it'll lag just like once or twice and i didn't know like it could be my player i doubt it 
But, you know, these things do happen. Maybe it's just a, a bad disc. But I wouldn't even call it a bad disc. It could just be a minor authoring problem where I saw just like a, a, like a, a, a kind of like a weird kind of motion thing. And I've seen that in other discs too. And it usually is like half a second here and there. And it happened a couple times. So it wasn't anything to completely go nuts about. But it was there for a split second. And I know a lot of people are there to always kind of badmouth VCI. And, and Ruby had some issues and everything. So I want to point that out uh, just in case other people might have it. But for the most part, I thought this looked really good because you got to think these movies are super cheap. Like, so this one looked really solid and I, um, I enjoyed the hell out of uh, Santo uh, versus the Riders of Terror. <laughs> There is a, a special feature, uh, I will mention it with this uh, this one, that is uh, the, the film historian who talks a lot about Santo. Um, he's kind of sit sitting down with the president of VCI and they talk about the history of Santo. And I thought that was great because they go through his life, his death, everything in between, how he started off as the wrestler into the comics, into the movies, how he was a heel in the actual wrestling world, but he was a face in the movies, which was cool too because I didn't really know that. And they even talk about Blue Demon, who he's in like uh, five or six movies with and you assume just because hey it's Santo and Blue Demon they're best friends right they maybe they're best friends in real life too it's like no they were rivals and maybe they didn't hate each other but they you know they were rivals and I liked hearing that and everything like that and I just I thought it was really fun and I just wanted to see so bad a biopic of Santo and the Blue Demon or something like that that would be so cool to see a, a biopic about Santo like I don't know there might be one in Mexico um because he's so popular he's like an icon <laughs> but I mean, I recognize him too. Even before I watched any Santo movies, I was like, I, I, that's Santo, right? Like, doesn't even Mondo Macabro use his face in their opening? I think they I think they do. But uh, yeah, it would just be really cool to see a biopic about Santo. Like a big budget biopic. Like, let's say it's fucking directed by the Coen brothers or something. I think that it would be very cool to see that. And I think it could be done really well and be very interesting. I, and I think that it's something that, we kind of deserve to see, or I don't know if we deserve it, but I want to see it. Okay. So it's, I want it. So we deserve it. Whatever. Anyways. Yeah. That is Santo versus the writers of terror. Okay. The next one in the Santo set is Santo. What is it? And the, in the vengeance of the mummy, I, I think it's also AK Santo and the mummy. They, a lot of these movies have all AK names and everything like that. So this one, um, it, this one, I, I feel like is probably my least favorite of the bunch. It's very, Kind of typical in like the adventure kind of subplot where like there's a group of archaeologists, they uh, go into inside a tomb, very mummy typical, but as Santo, um, and they get a curse. And of course, what happens is a mummy comes after them. But instead of your typical run of the mill, dragging his feet, Boris Karloff going to choke you to death mummy, we have a fucking Aztecian kind of style mummy. He doesn't look just like your typical mummy, he has like a, a, a kind of strange a headdress, I would call it maybe, and he uses a bow and arrow. Which I thought was really kind of fun and creative. You don't really see this kind of mummy typically in movies. But for the most part, it is kind of your jungle or your kind of like adventure kind of style movie where he's kind of picking off the people that went in the tomb. Um, this one does end up having a little bit different of a twist that your typical mummy movies may not. And it does really feel more like a Scooby-Doo style storyline in that aspect. Um, this was probably my least favorite of the four that I've watched so far in the box set. But I felt like it probably was one of the better looking ones. Um, I I felt like it was remastered uh, really well for what it is and everything like that. And it's probably just because the set location, it pops the colors, the, you know, a lot of greens and stuff. But uh, yeah, so this one, I feel like it was okay. 
Um, I, I can't give this like a wholehearted recommend or anything like that. But like I said, it's hard to make a great mummy movie, right? Um, now Santo has fought the mummy before he fought him a couple times, I think. Um, but yeah, so, uh, this one I thought was okay, but out of the four so far, I would go Santo versus the Riders of Terror is my top. And then I would go with probably the Wax Museum and then probably, I don't know. Maybe I prefer this one over Treasure of Dracula, but that's the clothed version. The unclothed version of Treasure of Dracula is better. Unfortunately, not in the set, but sold separately from BCI if you're really into it or not. But uh, yeah, so that is the second part of the Santo set. Next week, we're going to dive into two more, and it's going to be Santo versus Frankenstein's daughter. Okay. And Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. So cool, we can actually see him face off against uh, with the Blue Demon, who apparently is not Santo's best friend. He's his rival in real life. So anyways, uh, Santo. Uh, digging these so far, and it's uh, it's good to watch these ones. They are dubbed in English. There is original Spanish versions out there somewhere, but these they only have the English versions here. And I, I got to mention that because the dubbing is a little ridiculous, especially in like Santo and Riders of Terror. You hear a lot of funny things. They're like, I don't give a shit about it. It's kind of like when me and Jeremy joke around and we do like a, a John Wayne impersonation, which is awful. I'm like, I don't give a shit. There's a lot of real like over the top like dubbing acting but you get it it's uh the santo movie so check them out if it sounds like it's up your alley okay the next one here is school of death from mondo macabro and uh this is a pretty wild movie and it's not as explicit as one would think even in the commentary uh cat ellinger opens up by saying like the opening here seems like it's going to be more of an explicit movie than you would expect and she feels like it might actually hurt the movie and you know like just the way it, it looks and the plot itself is very very um uh, pretty exploitative sounding, to be honest. Like, what's going on, too, is pretty crazy. But as far as what's in the film, it's it's not as explicit or crazy as one would think. But the ideas are all there. So this is a gothic uh, a horror film, but it has, like, touches of bad scientists, has touches of, like, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say jelly, but, you know, it has, like, the crypts and all that kind of creepiness. Um, and it also has that kind of... Uh, huge plot point or, 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 or keyword, I guess you'd say, whatever, of like a school. Like, you know, these like a lot of these horror films think um, The House That Screamed or a lot of the Italian horror films always had like a school of sorts and stuff like that. So this one is it's a little no different. So we have like, I believe this school is kind of like, um, it's outwardly here to St. Elizabeth School in Victorian London, this place where young orphans and other females, wafts and, and uh, strays are trained to be good wives and servants, destined for employment in the houses of standing citizens. So that's kind of what it is. Like these girls don't really have a place to go kind of like orphans. And, um, they're trained to be like the, uh, like really well behaved. So they can kind of be taken to be like maids and servants and everything like that in other households. So, um, it kind of has a blood and lace storyline too. If you guys ever seen that one, kind of a, not blood and black lace, blood and lace, really gross <laughs> 1971 uh pg movie and um so like we have these girls that end up going uh they get sent somewhere to basically be uh to work and they never come back uh one day uh, one of the other girls while she's out she spots one of her friends who was sent away who uh supposedly died and everything like that so it gets really kind of really iffy and everything so a doctor ends up helping her in the investigation we have all these other people who are involved a journalist a police officer and all this kind of stuff but the idea in itself what's happening is absolutely bonkers and i don't want to spoil everything about the movie um like as far as the release is concerned visually and, uh, and audio it's a great looking movie i mean there's lots of beautiful shots of woods and gothic like kind of labs and like crypts and stuff like that so we have all that kind of stuff graveyards and and everything but we also have 
have these like the, the plot elements are so weird and it's also one of these movies where it's like not everybody seems like who they are and you know that's coming like yeah, it's just not really it, it's just kind of fairly obvious that it's going to go in that direction and I don't mean that as an insult when you see so many of the similar kind of movies you kind of expect that to come uh, to be coming but for for the gist of it like just explaining that this is a movie about somebody who performs operations on people and makes them sex slaves for rich people like on paper you're like oh and it's euro whore from 1975 you're like it's probably going to be really explicit and sleazy especially if it was put out by like a jess franco um i can't think of when the spanish rule whatever it came it changed over and everything but like just on paper you're like oh wow that's pretty pretty nuts and, and there is like uh, that that idea is pretty crazy too i mean like this does fit in right there with stuff like mill the stone woman and uh some of the other kind of like death smiles and a murderer all these kind of other ones i've taken there was a uh what well, a couple French ones as well that uh, Blood uh, Blood Castle is it Blood Castle I'm getting so freaking old, um, but I it wasn't Blood Castle, but it just fits in very much with a lot of these kind of movies from the time. Blood Rose is what I'm thinking of. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's right up there in that kind of vein. And like I said, it's beautiful looking. It's got your mad scientist all scarred up, uh, alternate identities of people, uh, you know, an evil uh, school and all that kind of stuff going for it. Um, like I said, it's a fairly good film. Um, that looks great. Uh, Mondo Macabre doesn't disappoint on their quality control ever. Um, if, if like a movie has like a Nick or something in the, the film elements, like I always feel like there's a couple companies out there like Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome or Mondo Macabre or even Severed for the most part that that's the best you're going to get. Like, I really don't think they're going to go uh, and give you something subpar. But, uh, so that is School of Death. Great stuff. Check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley. Not my favorite release of theirs, but a good, solid movie that I could see a lot of people enjoying. And it's it's all that gothic stuff that people seem to really dig, myself included. Okay, this next one here is a, is a really interesting one. And this is a German film about a Swiss uh, kind of, uh, like, folktale um, called Succubus from 1989. And I... I just, I think I only saw this cover art in like passing. I, I didn't know much about it. I didn't really know anything about it. By the cover art, just like everything, I thought it was probably like more of a sex exploitation movie than what it was. So, um, this follows the story of three kind of herdsmen that are isolated as a period piece. They're kind of in the middle of nowhere in like the the mountains and everything like that. It's a father son and then kind of an odd guy. Um, they're all fairly odd being isolated like that. So, anyways, uh, one day uh, when they're very drunk, two of them decide to make themselves a woman uh, out of uh, some of the things that are around and uh, they baptize her in alcohol and they you know they go ahead and one of them fornicates with it this kind of brings this succubus or which will a witch to their area that's haunting them and stalking them uh, wandering around the mountainside um, like and, and causing like mischief and, and trying to get them and what we know what a succubus does it feeds on like sexual energy and everything like that she's got these weird eyes and she's fairly naked the entire movie running around but yeah so um right when this movie starts uh visually it's amazing looking like uh, just the location on the the it's like swiss alps i want to say because it's a swiss story but anyways the mountains look wonderful wonderful it's very well shot um just a beautiful looking movie the music and everything and, and like well the sound design everything's just great about it visually and technically it's a very sound movie the story is uh i i've seen it one done one other time in a movie from 2010 called Sinatucci, 
um, which I believe is what the actual uh, myth is called. And uh, the lead actor, there's an interview with him, and he mentions that it was a myth and it was a play, and that's why he decided to do the film. And uh, that one is in the similar vein. It's been years since I've seen it. Uh, it's also gorgeously shot. And I feel like this the, the setup for this movie, it sets you up for some, some really good cinematography and locations and everything. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, not a very long movie. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. But uh, there's some really great stuff in here, and they don't. There's not all that much dialogue, you know. I guess so. They show a lot of things, but you kind of just get what the hell's going on almost immediately. And it does. It does take a while to set up everything and, and to get the uh, succubus there. Like, I don't absolutely have all that much to say about the movie in itself, but that it is a very interesting and it's very nice to see a glimpse at some other countries' mythology or these other myths that aren't haven't been done to death in film. And this is one of them. Um, like, I didn't know this movie existed, really, and this I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know it involved the same kind of myth as Sonatucci, or I probably would have tracked it down way before the Blu-ray release. So, again, a, kind of another hidden gem for Mondo Macabro as far as, as interest is concerned. Um, yeah, uh, there is a one special feature on here uh, with uh, the lead actor's interview with him. For It's about 30 minutes long. And he's a, he's a really interesting guy. Um, I, I, he talked about making the movie, getting involved with the movie, how he was a stage actor. And there's a couple stories in there that he talks about. I believe he's talking about the assistant director, and he, he quotes this line that he said about uh, to an old man about him being the outdated model, which I thought was pretty poignant and uh, and everything like that. And I love the little wink he gave to the camera at the very end. Uh, it just seems like a genuinely good guy, and he, he's an interesting guy too and that's more important than being a good guy in the interviews but generally interesting and good guy and um he, he had some interesting input on the film itself um yeah it's a it's a good film like i said um there is nothing gratuitously gory or as sexual as one might expect there's a lot of sexual stuff in here but uh you could feel the like underlining sexual tension amongst the three people and uh that that is always kind of crazy when you have like these films with a lot of isolated men and, and everything like that um, think the lighthouse, which is a would be a good kind of a companion piece with this movie, but Senatucci as well. So like these kind of films like that, where there's isolated men and the way they are, and and um, it also interesting the fact that how they kind of worship what they do, like they have take it very seriously with the herding and the milk and the um, the cheese and everything that they do, and they have like a a certain almost like religion about it or rituals and everything in that aspect too. And we see a lot of that. Um, so yeah, uh, succubus. I would recommend checking this out if it sounds like it's up your alley it's 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 not like very many movies and visually it's amazing so that's pretty good stuff and uh it would be a dangerous place to shoot so check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley okay we're gonna hop into the next one from the sylvia crystal 1970s collection and we're gonna get into mysteries here that stars sylvia crystal and of course rugger howard one of the one of the best of all time um and if you guys aren't familiar with rugger howard's work before he came to the states you know he did work with paul verhoeven but he was in a lot of like art films like um uh, legend of the holy drinker and of course mysteries and i've seen a handful of his movies just a couple and uh his work in those movies is much more different than his work later on in some like split second or hobo with a shotgun you know <laughs> it's a little bit different although he's great in all of them shows good amount of range um hitcher and everything like that as well as blade runner of course how could you not mention blade runner where he has the wonderful you know monologue um but yeah so i want to make sure i know where this which country this one came from i believe this is actually uh from the netherlands okay so this is 1978 and uh i must say that this is probably my favorite of the three that i've watched so far so uh this is based off um uh, I believe a book um, that was fairly popular, and I gotta say a period piece again. 
visually this movie is amazing i love how it looks it, it, the film stalker or the cinematographer whatever they used it has like this gloomy kind of melodramatic look almost like i don't want to say a blue tint because i'm always kind of against the cheap blue tints that they put on movies nowadays but this has like a very like a solemn look to it and it just works really well so the movie opens up with a man committing suicide um he kills himself um and in a really kind of brutal way, slashes his wrist and dies face down in the dirt. Um, and then shortly after, uh, Rugger Howard shows up in this small town. Nobody really knows who he is. He seems to be well off. He has money. He's just a very bizarre kind of character. He seems like a gentleman. He moves into this hotel, and within uh, a couple, like within the first day he's there, he sees Sylvia Crystal walking, and he falls madly in love with her, and he becomes infatuated with her. He also befriends a, a, a short person in uh, um, um, David Rappaport, who is an actor I know from The Bride from 1985 with Clancy Brown, the Frankenstein story. He's very good in that movie. He's very good in this movie. And he narrates the whole film. We we, we see the movie kind of through his eye, through his story. And Rugger Howard sees how he's treated by the people and he takes a liking to him and he decides to help him. And you, you feel the more and more it goes on that this uh, something's not right with Rugger Howard uh, physically and um, he just becomes uh, lovesick. It, it lovesick to the point of danger. He's dangerous in a lot of aspects. But like I said, visually, the movie is wonderful. Uh, the location is great. Um, you see Rugger Howard sitting on a tombstone in a gloomy, kind of rainy day watching a funeral procession walk by. That kind of stuff. Like, it's just really, like... Uh, such a unique looking movie. Like, And a lot of these Dutch movies have that look. And I think that look... It's just, uh, I, I really would like to kind of know what the film stock they use at that time is. It just has its own unique quality. Kind of like when you see like the Hong Kong movies in the 90s. They have their own look too. Like they have maybe sometimes like this really ultra blue thing going on too. Um, but there's just like certain countries, certain times, super film stuff and the way it's edited and shot. Um, this one just looks great. Um, there's lots of, there's a lot of scenes of walking and depression and stuff like just sad moments like that. But uh, Rugger Howard is, is amazing in it. He's, he's amazing. He's a super interesting character. He's sympathetic, yet he does some awful things involving a dog, which is just like, it seems like some watching a lot of these old movies, characters in the past just don't really seem to give a shit much about their pets um, as much as uh, a lot of other people would. But uh, yeah, uh, anyways, this is a really strong film. Uh, also, uh, Rita Tushingham is in this film, and she's in a, a couple, um, I believe she's in a Hammer, a couple Hammer movies I watched. Very good actress, uh, pops up in a lot of things. Very, very, uh, captivating eyes and uh, she's also a really sympathetic interesting character but uh yeah it's just uh it's kind of a heartbreaking depressing uh well-made well-shot movie that i really dug i i really recommend checking this one out um this is my favorite of the bunch and there's some sexual situations of course with rugger howard and sylvia crystal in here um but anyways uh it's just a really good film really interesting Really good stuff, and I would really recommend it. So far, the box set is not really disappointed. Um, Pastorelli, nineteen forty-three, and Mysteries are, are two gems. I mean, obviously they're um, well-renowned and respected films, of course, but they're they're movies to me. Like in America, I don't think that they're they don't uh, aren't as widely available or known as they probably should be. So, uh, Cult Epics releasing a lot of good things. Always broaden my horizons when I check out their films, and I appreciate that. But uh, good stuff, and this is my favorite of the four so far. And we got next week, we got Julia, which I don't know anything about as well. So, yeah, anyways, uh, cool box set, uh, nice focus on an actress who I was just vaguely familiar with. 
Okay, the next one here is a Patreon pick by Derek B. And this is Die, Monster, Die. And this is what? Like one of the first Lovecraft adaptations. It's based off The Color Out of Space, which we saw with Nicolas Cage. And I believe even The Curse, a.k.a. The Farm by David Keith, um, produced by Lucio Fulci, was The Color Out of Space as well. Um, I had read that story a long time ago, I believe. It's the one where like the space shit falls and it like, just starts to alter everything around. Um, now, we're thinking AIP, you know, what they probably wanted the same success they had with the Poe stories, so they started grabbing some Lovecraft stories. The Haunted Mansion was another one, or the Haunted Palace, sorry, that they did. The Haunted Mansion is this Disney thing. The Haunted Palace is another one they kind of did. Um, and they do have like the same vein as those Poe adaptations, but they're, they're Lovecraft stories, so they're a little bit wilder and crazier. So this follows the story of a young man who is on his way to, I can't think of the house he's going to, but he's going to meet up with a girl that he knew from college that he's in love with. He's supposed to go there. He gets to the small town, and in perfect small town super he mentions where he's going and everybody says well no you can't rent a car I will not drive you that far he tries to rent a bike says, he's not one of my bikes buddy so he has, ends up having to walk to this house he finds this strange place where it looks like something crashed and burned um he ends up walking to the house and right away he's kind of uh, um, not a uh, very cold welcome by Boris Karloff, who's in a wheelchair. I don't know if he was in a wheelchair at this point or not in real life. I know that he was in, uh, what was that one, Blood Cauldron from 1970. He wasn't doing too well either. I, I'm not sure how his health was, where it was, and everything like that. Um, so anyways, he greets, he's still great. It doesn't matter. I mean, Karloff, Karloff is like FDR. I mean, he's no good, good job from a wheelchair, right? Not that I was alive during FDR's presidency, but he's a well-respected president out here. So uh, anyways, Boris Karloff does an amazing job anyways in the wheelchair um so he, he warns him and tells him to go that he shouldn't be here yada 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 eventually the young man meets frida jackson who is in uh, brides of dracula great performance in that um uh, she's a good actress um jeremy pointed her out when jeremy watched this one he was like is that is that the lady from brides of dracula and i was like i don't know i can't tell she's behind a veil and he, we looked it up and it was her and she's in a bunch of stuff i didn't register it at first but anyways uh, frida jackson is his wife and she's kind of suffering from an ailment and she just wants him to take his the daughter and leave so uh before everything kind of could get like out in the open uh, there's a lot of mysterious shit going on there's a butler who passes away and boris karloff has something in the basement it lights green illuminous at night and everything like that um and and he's up to something and he essentially just is being very stubborn and wants them to go and it turns out that there is definitely something that crash landed and it, years ago and it affected the entire family the lineage and all this kind of shit we have that madness passed down by generation to generation very lovecraft madness think very very poe too so um anyways uh i thought this one was decent and really what drives this story home is frida jackson and boris karloff's performances um the lead guy in here he's very strange he, he feels like he's coming out of like a uh like a, a 40s tabloid or 50s tabloid he's like hey sir can i uh offer to buy you a paper he kind of has that weird kind of thing going on i don't dislike his performance i don't dislike his uh, his his character it's just kind of strange feels a little out of place acting alongside of people like uh, uh boris karloff to be honest but karloff's got some really great almost like not he's not super subtle all the time but he does have some subtle things with his face that you could tell like when somebody's talking at dinner and he there's one point where he just like slightly moves his eyes before he goes out and stuff he's just a good actor he works well um and, and i mean i wouldn't say he's super subtle but 
his his facial movements and everything are just perfect and um he's just a very great he's a great iconic actor and he never really disappoints uh yeah this is interesting it's not overly uh like special effects extravaganza there is kind of a thing at the end with it all like kind of silver man coming after them very universal horror movie style thing but you could tell it's a it's an interesting enough kind of uh carry over to see like you know the aip studios doing like a lovecraftian kind of thing which is very much like a poe we get haunted palace later i think haunted palace is after this i'm not 100 sure I, I believe the haunted palace is a little bit better than this one probably because it's directed by corman himself and then later down the line we would get a lot of you know Stuart Gordon, which kind of changed the game on how people made Lovecraft adaptations. But this one, it's fun. It's decent. It's solid. Um, I, I, I haven't watched The Curse in a long time, or and I remember liking Color Out of Space I probably a little bit more than this one. But it is interesting, and you can't go wrong with Karloff and Lovecraft and AIP together. So it's a pretty interesting, entertaining movie that's Die, Monster Die. Okay, the next one here is from 1991. I didn't get a chance when we did the Retro Year 91. I didn't watch it. I should have, though, because I really enjoyed it. And this is Zerum. I know uh, Dustin Mills and Seb Godin, friends of mine, uh, both really love this movie for good reason. Um, this is a Media Blasters Blu-ray. Glad to see them putting out uh, a lot of their old stuff. This has been never had a Blu-ray release stateside. Uh, the imports were super expensive. The DVD was out of print. So really happy to see this get a re-release. And yeah. So it's kind of like a bio armor fight, like kind of in the vein of Guyver deal. So we have this, uh, the main character here, she's like a badass female bounty hunter and she, uh, works with her partner, Bob, who's this computer, uh, deal, but he, he seems to have, like have like a sentient computer deal. So they decide to take this job to hunt this, uh, monster in Zerum. Zerum is a real strange, I don't know if it's Zyrum or Zerum, but we're going to go with Zerum. So he's a very strange kind of creature. In the very beginning, we see him like destroy a bunch of people, just kill a bunch of soldiers. So he ends up, uh, kind of, kind of escaping and, uh, they take the money to, uh, they take the job to hunt him. So it's, it's like exclusively their hunt. Um, there's this weird thing in the film where essentially there's this system that you can pay like part of your money to where they can basically force Zerum to this location and create a temporary battleground. Um, and it's essentially an alternate dimension. Um, so if you, if you're in like the, uh, like say you're in Brooklyn, you'll automatically create like this fake Brooklyn where, uh, it'll be a certain amount of city blocks and you're trapped in there and if you don't kill your your prey or capture your your prey or whatever your bounty within time it disintegrates and who's ever in there is in trouble so essentially what happens is our bounty hunter does this but she ends up kind of sucking in these two bumbling electricians who are comic relief kind of goofy characters and they get sucked into the the place as well and Zerum kind of gets put on the other side so it creates a lot of havoc and chaos and everything like that so where and Zerum is kind of tracking these these kind of bumbling idiots down and they have to survive Zerum is like this heavy duty super strong alien creature that has these bizarre powers where he has this thing in his forehead that like, or it's, I believe it's on his forehead. It launches out like a little snake and it will like bite something, anything organic, um, animal, uh, typically, um, is what they show, uh, like a dog or something. And it will puke out, it will suck in its DNA and send out these monstrous versions of it to do it bidding. So like that aspect is amazing. It's awesome. It's unique. So like Zerum is kind of like a monster on like any other, but he's also in this big battle suit. So essentially, of course, we're going to, uh, our bounty hunter is going to get back there and face off a couple times. A lot of cool fights. The location's awesome because it's like an industrial kind of locations, but it's completely like desolate of people. So um, that's really fun. And the battle scenes are awesome. And Zerum itself, the monster is really unique and different. So it's like if it's battle damaged, 
it it, it won't it's very hard to kill so it will like kind of change its its body like kind of like the thing almost in a, in a way like if you destroy it uh, part of it will grow different arms and limbs and it does this a couple times one point in stop motion which is really fun and at the very end it turns into something very scary and very kind of uh, thing like with like its weird head moving around just kind of bonkers shit like that anyways this is very entertaining the bounty hunters going back and forth with Bob is entertaining and the two bumbling electricians. All the characters are very likable. Zerum's a very scary awesome monster um, that does a lot of cool shit. So I'd really recommend checking out Zerum. It looked really good and sounded good. Um, uh, so anyways, I'm, I'm happy to see Media Blasters putting out more and more stuff. Um, like I, I pick up a lot of the releases. They're well priced too if you go to like right stuff um anime or something like that like 15 dollars a pop um if you get them on sale and everything so that's it's fairly well priced and everything so zero check it out uh yeah you can throw away your old bootlegs or your dvds you finally get it on blu-ray and everything very cool okay we're gonna hop into those 1994 movies prison officials say Dahmer's head may have been bashed against a wall they have last minute appeals failed to stop the execution of america's most notorious mass murderer john wayne gacy Throughout, Chikatilo presented himself as a wretched victim of nature's indifference. Say the truth. Reality! What do you know about reality? It's not a solitary story. This is not reality. Not reality. Not reality. This is reality. The delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a ghost. Look, he hasn't got any relatives, and the coma he's in is irreversible. Give me a signature and I'll pull the plug now! Fuck off! And the first one coming up should come as no surprise. It is Zerum 2 from 1994. So I watched the first one. Same director as the first film uh, as well. What is his name? Akita uh, Amina. I'm terrible with names that I don't know too well. But uh, yeah, 1994. And it stars the entire cast in the first one. But it's a little bit different. I guess Zerum's a little bit different of a creature. It appears in this one they've had somehow taken Zerum and used his like DNA to create a new Zerum that can possibly help with their bidding. So uh, at one point, Bob... Bob and our bounty hunter again are they they have actually been hired to get this old school um, transportation uh, mechanism and they grab that and they're on their way but a couple of goons are after it as well this gang of goons and uh, what happens is um, at one point Zerum shows up and uh, to help her and it slaughters so many people and everything like that um, but the problem is uh, oh, Zerum is not really He's not exactly uh, made 
exact to help out. He's he's kind of all over the place, and something goes wrong, of course. Um, the bounty, uh, our, our two electricians are back as well. One's on the way to get married. Of course, they get tied into this as well. They get sucked into the world with Zero and our bounty hunter. And it's very much uh, a replay of the first movie, except I don't think it's as strong. Um, the location's a little bit different, still entertaining. That moment where Zero first shows up and attacks an army, literally an army of people, that part is amazing. I wish it was a little longer. I wish that they kept some of those characters around longer so we could see more of a style of Predator, I guess, is what we're looking for. Because Zerum is like Predator meets the Thing or something along those lines. Meets meets like the Giver. He's he's that kind of deal. So I, it would have been nice to see Zerum uh, kind of like not kill everybody in a minute and a half. But anyways, it happened. It's still entertaining. It works really well. And most of the movie just kind of follows them kind of trying to survive his skin. Zerum doesn't do as many cool things, but there's a lot of cool shit still to have. Zerum's like little DNA thing is in the center here this time. And uh, he, he still uses it and uses the kind of um, the clone procedure and everything. The one thing that cracked me up in the first one, which I didn't mention, is that at one point he clones like a human and it doesn't work out well, and it's so fucking gross. So gross. But uh, Zerum 2, not as strong as the first one, very much like the first one, but still uh, welcomed to uh, enjoyable, because watching it and seeing all the same characters come back was was something of a relief, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I can't really go wrong with this kind of stuff. It's, it's entertaining. Um, and the only, the real knock on it is Zerum doesn't get to do as many cool things as far as, like, changing into different monsters and shit as he did in the first one. Like, doing uh, how much stuff he did in the first one was just like amazing i didn't expect any of that so when it came to the second one i was expecting a little more of that and it really wasn't there that was kind of disappointing almost as good as the first just not quite there um yeah that's zerum too very fun if you if you checked out like if you if you're a fan of giver or any of that kind of stuff the bio armor monster fighting shit these are definitely up your alley so good stuff Okay, one of the heavy hitters from 94. I had covered this on the show before, but I had to rewatch it for 94. I couldn't leave it on the table. And this is John Carpenter's like love letter to Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, um, starring uh, Sam Neill in the mouth of madness. Um, yeah, I love this movie. It's part of John Carpenter's apocalyptic trio, along with The Thing. Um, and Prince of Darkness, two of my favorites John Carpenter movies, and this one is also well, uh, one of my favorites. This is one of the strongest cast John Carpenter ever worked with. I mean, we have Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, uh, Charlton Heston, Bernie Casey, Peter uh, Jason, Jorgen Prichow. Who else pops up in this one? I know I'm forgetting probably a couple people. I'm going to probably cheat. See, John Glover is in here and fucking David Warner. I forgot about David Warner, one of my all-time favorite actors. So, yeah, this is, a, this is one of these movies that's just super fucking nuts as well. So Sam Neill is, uh, what is he, uh, an insurance kind of guy who, who finds a fraudulent insurance claims and everything like that. He, uh, who is he work for? He doesn't directly work for Bernie Casey, but he's not, he's kind of his own guy. He's hired a lot. So, um, Jorgen Perchow is an author named Sutter Kane. He outsells Stephen King. He's the most popular author of all time. So Charlton Heston runs the publishing company that he writes for and he's disappeared. And he's supposed to deliver like the next biggest book. People are going nuts on the streets about it. They can't get enough of these Sutter Kane books. Like it almost seems like they are a cult, or they say that his writing has adverse effects on certain people. So in the very beginning of the movie, he decide you see how good he is. Sam Neill proves his worth, and he kind of he calls out this guy who's uh, screwing around with the insurance claims and everything like that's a very fun scene. Very sweaty Peter Jason, who's a character actor in a bunch of movies, including Prince of Darkness. Um, so what what happens is uh, right in the beginning 
beginning. It's an iconic scene with you read Sutter Kane, and uh, he he ends up doing his job even after some crazy things happen. Taking it, he starts to read Sutter Kane a little bit, and he's set along with Julie Carmen, who works for the publishing house as well, and they end up in this crazy place called Hobbs End, which is actually one of the books that he wrote. And Sam Neill refuses to believe it. You know, he refuses to believe that any of this is reality. He thinks it's all a big gimmick because he's that you know he's that guy who's who's wor- he's he's trained in picking out fake claims so uh to the bitter end he refuses to accept this kind of stuff but uh structurally the movie opens up with sam neill getting put in, a, in an insane asylum and david warner kind of interviewing him so we know that uh um a- a- sam neill isn't all there as, as he goes over the story we kind of we kind of see all these these uh these points how he got there and everything like that. So, anyways, uh, I should mention Francis Bay is also in here in a great role in, in here uh, <laughs> in Hobbs End. But uh, Hobbs End itself is like it's a very Lovecraftian thing, right? It feels very New England. This town of people mutating and changing, You're like that's Lovecraft. Um, the person being in the greenhouse, like the monster thing, is, is Lovecraft. Um, there's a painting on the wall where they keep changing, and eventually there are these creatures on the ground. You think shadow over Innskeep. Like, it's just a lot. Innsmouth. Innsmouth, sorry. Innskeep. Uh, so it's just like all these little shout outs to Lovecraft in itself. And the idea that a writer is bringing in, like, this these monsters through his writing. And the character, Jorgen Perchow, actually, Perchow, I probably said his name wrong, but he's in a bunch of stuff. Um, he, he says this line. He's like, I don't know if I created it or the or the old ones. Basically, the old ones essentially told him to what to write to create it. So it's just like a, a bonkers movie. It's a special effects extravaganza in this one scene where Sam Neill has to outrun all these monsters. And you can't help but think that a lot of these monsters are probably like those old ones that you've seen there. The unexplainable, the ones that you cannot fathom, the ones that you've seen and, and now you're driven mad. And that's essentially, it's very Lovecraftian that aspect that Sam Neill is being interviewed by David Warner and he's telling this story and he's in an insane asylum telling all these crazy things that happen. But um, there is that aspect of mass hysteria in here that is, is coming from the books and and uh, eventually uh, the end scene in the movie theater is one of the most amazing scenes of horror films ever and it's got to be the top, one of the tops in 1994. Um, Sam Neill is a great actor. I mean you can't go wrong when you incorporate Sam Neill, John Carpenter and Lovecraft. Like those are like kind of like when I always will bring up Christine or I mean, uh, um, uh, Dead Zone, which is a great movie. It's just like you have Dave, Chris, uh, Christopher Walken, David Cronenberg, and Stephen King. It's like, that's an odd combination. It's sure to please. And I'm telling you, In the Mouth of Madness is sure to fucking please. John Carpenter, um, Sam Neill and, and Lovecraft. And he also has inspiration with Stevie King in there as well. So it's just like, you got all this stuff in here. It's just amazing. And, uh, I love the, like the heavy rock song that comes in the very end. I, uh, I think it comes in the credits too, but it's very much just like, I, I feel like that's a very John Carpenter, like ideal, like to have that music come in, like that heavy, many heavy, like heavy rock music come in and everything like that. Just lots of creepy shit, lots of unsettling shit, just lots of great special effects. And I love this movie. It's a great movie. Um, I thought it looked really good too on the new release. Uh, originally I watched the old universal Blu-ray when I first covered this. And of course it's since been released by screen factory. Uh, it's a new 4k scan. I really love to see uh, 4k of this one. I definitely would buy it. I'm a sucker for that shit. I can't help it. Um, but yeah, there's all some special features on here too new audio commentary john carpenter and producer sandy king carpenter new horse hollowed grounds a look at the film's locations today new interviews with actress julia carmen and special effects makes up artist greg nicotero i listened to both those julie carmen i love i mean she popped up in fright night too i love her in that movie she talks a little bit about this one 
Aiden Herod, I like seeing that. And of course, uh, she talks about like kind of like the cult weird movies are the ones that people remember her for. And uh, Greg Nicotero talking about working with Carpenter, kind of worked with him in the latter part of his career. Um, love Greg Nicotero. I love his effects. And I love that he talks a lot about the monsters they created in that hallway scene. He's like, we had lots of weird ones. And he said Carpenter's favorite was like this weird meatball thing with just a bunch of teeth. He's like, I love that guy. So that was nice to see that. Like, So anyways, just a great, crazy, bonkers movie. And uh, yeah, just a lot of memorable lines too. Did you read Sutter Kane? This is reality. This is not reality. As you can tell, I used that opening clip in my 94 stuff because I'm a big fan of the movie and I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, everything it has to offer and the acting and the performances and everything too. So just great stuff. And I should mention that it does have Vigo, the Carpathian from uh, Ghostbusters 2. He's also in Die Hard. He's in here too as a townie that uh, I was written this way, uh, of course. Anyways, great movie. Great, great stuff uh, in the mouth of madness. Okay, the next one from 1994 is Mahalakal, a.k.a. The Monster. And this is an Indian movie. Everybody knows this as the Indian Freddy Krueger. I find it very funny that in 1994, a Bollywood Freddy Krueger movie was being made while Wes Craven was making, you know, kind of like, I guess I would want to say the final stamp, but it's not really on Nightmare on Elm Street. So this one really feels more like a mix of part one and four. Like, they, uh, they don't really have any aspects of two, of course, or anything after four like it's like four just got released in india at the time or something like that because they incorporate the underwater wet dream theme so um yeah this is damn near two hours and is it two hours and 18 minutes like yeah so like you see that at runtime and you're just like what in an indian movie but uh indian movies they tend to incorporate everything so like a horror movie will also have musical numbers a lot of them the bollywood style things so um, I'm surprised these people didn't get sued. This is by the Ramsey brothers who were pretty prolific in horror movies in like the 80s and 90s and stuff like that, making a lot of these ones. But this is very much, when people say this is a, a Nightmare on Elm Street Indian version, it really fucking is. Like on um, the opening stuff, you see like uh, like the claw and everything. You're like, oh, this feels a lot like Nightmare on Elm Street. Like literally it's scene for scene at times, like, but just cheaper. And like how some of the characters are killed down to the prison scene, somebody getting hung. And, and you're just, oh, but it's, it's different snakes and everything. So it's it's very much Nightmare on Elm Street, but it has a very much an Indian sentiment to it, like a mentality, of course. So some of the cool, interesting things I've seen that they changed about this, in this, the character is not um, somebody who is burned alive. Like, so Freddy Krueger had his burn marks, right? This character is very gross looking. Like, he's been, it looks like he's been burned. But when you find out how he got like that, you don't ever find out why he's burned. He's just an evil sorcerer. So, in a lot of aspects, you can kind of like, that must not have translated the dream demon really very well. So, they're like, well, he's an evil sorcerer. That's why he's able to come back. And, of course, it's the very story, of course, of, you know, him haunting these kids in their dreams and everything. And, uh, but instead of like just being like, you, you can really appreciate the pacing of a Nightmare on Elm Street after watching this because in Nightmare on Elm Street, it's just like, boom, boom. Hey, I had that same dream. But in this one, it's just like, it, you see the points of Nightmare on Elm Street hitting the beats, but it's like 40 minutes in between each beat. And, uh, so like, it, it, it's crazy to think like, the, the, so you have like the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff going on and it's very typical Nightmare on Elm Street, but there's some aspects changed, of course, that are very Indian, like the sorcerer aspect in here. Um, and, and of course, you know, John Saxon's character, you know, the cop and the, the mom and dad aren't divorced. They're not divorced in this one. Um, but they also have these other crazy aspects. Like they have slash, slapstick comedy. Like, of course, you got to have slapstick comedy over the topness. They have dance numbers, which is expected in these uh, these Bollywood movies. But there's a Michael Jackson impersonator? 
Like, this comic character who seems to be a big deal in India. He's in a bunch of movies. He essentially runs this little restaurant cafe that the kids stop at, or he works there. And he's a Michael Jackson impersonator. And the introduction of his character, he walks out, and, like, you hear, uh, is it bad or is it thriller? I think it's bad. Like, you hear, like, the beat of bad coming out, and you see a Michael Jackson poster in the background, and he's, like, dressed like him, and he's like, bam, 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 bam. He literally walks out, even though I did the thriller music. I can't remember. I think it might be thriller. Whatever. He walks out, Michael Jackson music's playing. It's a Michael Jackson poster in the background. And he has, like, the hair, like, I'm the Jerry Curl. I'm just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I can't believe this is happening. And, like, he'll just walk around and be Michael Jackson the entire movie, and he's just overacting. It's cheesetastic. Like, it's fucking hilarious, but it's also baffling. Like, you're like... I, I'm like sitting there. It's like just imagining like the the like the the director sitting there watching Nightmare on Elm Street. Like that was pretty good, but you know what it needs? And the other guy's like slapstick comedy. He's like, yeah. He's like, what else? And you know something else? Me, uh, Michael Jackson impersonator. Yeah. And then he's like, also rapey men. Wait, you're losing me. But there's a vigilante played by I think the same guy. He plays like three roles, or possibly maybe they make jokes about him being their brother, and it's like three different characters. It's just like I I don't know. There's like a weird vigilante scene where like for no reason the movie just stops. And these two girls are walking down the street and this gang of thugs is like, we're going to rape them. So they chase him in a bar and then like this vigilante guy with chains comes out in a slapstick moment. He beats them all up and it's really goofy. And I'm just like, why is this in here? Why is this like vanity piece for this character to be a badass in here? And it's like comical weirdness. I don't fucking know. But like other characters as well, like, there's a group of uh, the main kids, and then there's a group of the main kids, like, bullies. Like, they don't like them, and they're always just, like, out there doing fucked up shit, like, trying to, like, molest the main girl and shit. Um, and the father character is just, like, such a piece of shit until eventually you realize that, you know, he was the one that killed Freddy because, um, uh, or not Freddy, I'm sorry, Indian Freddy, because of uh, their daughter being killed. And I like that aspect uh, that they incorporate, you know, them having a kid who was killed, which I believe was supposed to be in the original Nightmare on Elm Street script, right? I think that Heather Langenkamp was supposed to have a brother who was killed and everything and it was all kind of cut out and everything but they have it still in here so like i don't so there's these weird touches that are like oh that's that's i don't even want to dare say it slightly improved although it's not carried out better but you can be like oh that's interesting to see that they have that aspect in here but they don't have this aspect and whatnot and like freddy's not a dream demon in a sense he's a sorcerer who's always had these magical powers and and like killed kids and everything like that um but so lots of weird things there's like lots of on like unintentionally funny shit like when the dad kills him and buries him he like throws him in a hole that's like two feet deep and it's like i fucking get out of here like like i can't believe they showed the coffin fall into that hole that hole is clearly not deep enough but they show it anyways um it is a little long i'm gonna be honest like after the two hours and 18 minute mark you're like all right i've had enough of this about after an hour and 45 uh, but i was entertained i'm not gonna lie um there's lots of weird slapstick humor that's outdated even for the 90s of people like trying to peep in on their friends like changing like oh yeah um that michael jackson character is just like how are we how are you not getting sued um the score is like an off uh nightmare no street's like I don't even know. It's literally like how um, Vanilla Ice was like, I changed it. I changed the song, you know, like under he changed under pressure just a little bit. They did that here where it's like, I, I, I hope maybe I can find a clip of it where it's like, I, I don't even know if it's like, do, 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 do. you're just like, oh no, oh no. And you realize how effective, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street music is like, you could like literally like uh, make anything scary by putting that music there. I'm not going to lie, but there are some nice set designs and everything. There's like a hallway with chains and his big like throne of weird um with like the weird statue and everything's kind of cool so there's some nice aspects and there's another part i believe like they they directly rip some of the other score from nightmare on elm street too uh but I, 
Like, that's not that... But, whatever. This movie's nonsense. But it's it's super entertaining nonsense. There is a um, Bollywood Crypt interview with Deep uh, Deepak Ramsey, who I believe is, like, the son of the directors. And there's, like, a 30-minute talk of that. And they talk about making a sequel to some of their movies and everything like that. So, yeah. Anyways, if you always wanted to see Indian Freddy Krueger, I mean, there was an old Mondo Macabro disc that's long out of print. The Bollywood horror sets are all out of print. But this finally got a, a Blu-ray for Massacre video. Uh, I'm surprised this is fucking released with all the copyright shit that has to be. I don't know what the rules and laws are different. But anyways, uh, um entertaining. Nonsense. Had to watch it for 94, glad I did. And the, Freddy Krueger, literally, Indian Freddy Krueger. He has the fucking claw, the claw's the same. Um, you gotta see it. If you're a Nightmare on Elm Street enthusiast or fan, or, or just a fan of weird movies, you gotta see it. You gotta see it just to be like, why? Oh, this isn't real. This isn't, this is real. It's fucking weird. Uh, yeah, anyways, aka The Monster. Um, it's, it's funny. They're making Wes Craven's Nightmare 94, and then we have the Indian Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, yeah. So anyways, just crazy, crazy stuff. Okay, the last one from 1994 is from Turkey, and this is The Serpent's Tale. This is like an, a limited edition DVD, and I was actually sorting DVDs over here. I was like, oh, I'm going to put all the DVD imports kind of together and everything. And I pulled this off the shelf, and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know I actually owned one of these copies, to be honest, um, of this film. Um, but, I, but I apparently I do. So this is English friendly. Um, this is a strange film. It's in, uh, what is the languages it's in? It's not, it's in English and it's in, I believe I want to say, uh, Turkish. Um, and there's Greek subtitles on the disc, but you get English subtitles over the thing too. So, um, I, I don't know how to go about this movie. It, it follows kind of like, it's very much a product of its country in like a myths and things like that and understanding, and so I started this one, and I was lost almost right away. Like, I, I'll read the back for you guys. Unique in many ways and considered the best Turkish horror film by international reviewers, The Serpent's Tale knows how to create an eerie and uncanny atmosphere where reason gives way to hallucination and poetry can turn into nightmares and vice versa. It's better watched than talked about, but when you watched it, it must be talked about. And I can see that. But, like, when, I, when I'm going to talk about this, I don't fucking... I don't know what the hell is happening. It opens up with, like, this big, like... um basically exposition of what the hell's going on this 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 uh, i guess like this uh, it would be like a mcguffin or a catalyst to a story where everybody wants this and what it is and all that kind of shit but like it was white subtitles on like a white background that kept getting bigger so like 80 like 20 percent of what it just explained the opening i couldn't fucking read because you put white on white subtitles without a black it's fucking dumb um, so I couldn't read it. So I was like, all right, well, I'm kind of screwed on that aspect. So I was lost kind of right off the beginning. But what we get is this, this American in Turkey, he's kind of traveling and someone approaches him and says, Hey, I am so-and-so. Can you reach out to my mother? Yada. He does. And his mother's like, he's been dead for years. Uh, and so they start to look for him and everybody is looking for this, this item. And there's a weird cult. Um, there's some vampires possibly question mark and weird shit going on. Um, visually it looks really good cool um there's lots of nice like sets i mean not sets i mean like visually like there's a lot of cool locations that they use but besides that like it's a very hard movie to follow i need context and i need proper subtitles um 
but like besides that opening the subtitles are done well um but it's just a movie that lost me kind of like left me kind of scratching my head there was one made in 1970 that i feel is kind of in the same vein with uh the the character who meets jeez, oh, i'm getting so old i can't remember the title of that um where the, he meets the two the brother and sister who kind of follow that weird cult aspect and and it's also a movie that kind of left me like scratching my head in a lot of places where i'm just missing a lot of the mythology and the depth of what it is the opening kind of reminded me a little bit of chronos um, you know, by Guillermo del Toro, how they explain what this emblem is and everything. But that's just much more effective and set up the whole movie well for me. This is kind of like the failed version of that because, like I said, the subtitles are a little hard to read. And, but it, it opens up for an interesting aspect. And, like, it, it's more fantasy as well as horror. Um, but I really can't talk much about this it's one of these movies where it's like i don't know where where to go about it if it's good or it's bad or it's just something that just left me kind of lost and, and confused um that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie it means that i i particularly can't tell you anything a fucking about it um and i would say it's something like uh father my frost from 91 which was a uh it seemed like an interesting film but at the same time like it's so odd for it's so out of place for an american who doesn't know a lot of these culture cultural aspects and everything to go in here and it's just a mind screw of a movie in the first place so it's just like i i'm sorry i'm lost here i'm lost for words i'm lost for context i'm lost on everything about the servant's tale and i i didn't enjoy it to watching it to be honest just because of that um but i i, I mean i tried i tried my ADHD would not let me get into it, but I feel like I'm not the only one on this one. A lot of times I'll watch a movie and I'll feel like an absolute idiot. Then I'll, I'll go through the reviews and a lot of people are the same way. Like, this is harder to follow for me being westernized and stuff like it just doesn't. There are a lot of people that will get it. They're probably, they, they're more of the world than myself. But this one, A Serpent's Tale, is a little, a little hard to grasp, honestly. Hey guys, what's up? We're here for Blind Spot. No, yeah, or you ain't seen. And I picked this for you. Uh, I gave you a choice, and you picked Videodrome, which I did not expect, to be honest. I sold you on Debbie Harry. But this is a 1983 David Cronenberg movie. David Cronenberg is one of the, I guess, most prolific and popular horror directors of all time. And gotta be, he is, obviously. I don't know why you act like he's not when you have no idea what the group of horror fans actually like. <laughs> You're like, that's outrageous. <laughs> it's like, I don't know nothing about it. This isn't Del Toro. You'd be like, I'd be like somebody tell me something about a car that I know nothing about. I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so anyways, he's Canadian. He's He's got to be the most popular Canadian horror director, period. I mean, so he has a lot of big movies. Started off early in his career with stuff like Shivers and Rabbit. He did Fast Company, which is not a horror film, didn't see it. But he had the, the big horror movies in the beginning of his career. Shivers, Rabbit, The Brood, Scanners. Mm -hmm. And then I think this one came along. And this was a little bit more of an artier one, I guess I'd say. Although all his films kind of have that quality. They're kind of like... Yeah. I guess cerebral horror films, science fiction kind of stuff in there too, even if you look at his early shorts. Um, and then he would go on to do The Fly and, and that kind of more recognition there. So this is one of the more popular uh, David Cronenberg titles. This is one that many people uh, have a lot of love for and affinity. It stars uh, James Woods, who's perfectly cast. Very weird, very strange actor, very strange character in the film as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, Debbie Harry. I think those are kind of the two big people in the film. Probably the two most recognizable. Yeah, I mean, there's other actors and yeah. characters that are pretty good as well. But uh, Max, his name's Max, I believe, isn't it? 
I think it's Max. Yeah, Max, who runs this kind of uh, cable access channel that plays scummy exploitation, and he has two partners, and they all kind of just pick up stuff from around the world, you know, like sleazy. I guess they almost look like the Katsu erotic films kind of style, but mm -hmm. I guess not even that extreme. They're looking and picking up some of those. But he, uh, one day, um, somebody that works for him, uh, that works at like transmitting and does like the, the cable stuff, end up ends up finding a weird signal and he unscrambles it and they watch it and it appears to be these fake snuff films. Uh, even before the guinea pig movies and stuff like that. So I feel like this is kind of inspired a lot of stuff. So uh, he gets infatuated. He has a dark side, and although he tries to pass it off as more of a business uh, kind of thing, he definitely is uh, sexually intrigued. He meets Debbie Harry, who is also into that sort of stuff, and kind of they go a little bit deeper into it. And uh, before long, Max not only uncovers a weird uh, video station that probably is actually killing people, but kind of a government conspiracy at the same time. So we're probably going to spoil this movie, but uh, yeah, that, that, I haven't watched this in years. I remember seeing it and being completely baffled and uh, just, and also how um, ahead of its time it was when it comes to the man-machine mixture technology yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which I feel like a lot of Japanese films would kind of follow suit after. Like, I can't think of any it, it was all kind of happening in the same time, though, early 80s. And... Well, I think this was before Akira, isn't it? It's before Akira. It's before uh, yeah. Tetsuo. It's, is it before Crazy Thunder Road? I think they'll they consider that one one of the crazy kind of like punk, like weird aesthetic. Oh, yeah, Although I don't, I don't think that is more like man into metal kind of deal. Um, but that, have... that would go back to Kafka, right? Originally in the man into the bug. But yeah. this is different this with the technology different. and everything. I, I think yeah. this one, you know, definitely has like, like hints of like cyberpunk in it. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, Max, um, James Woods cast perfectly. Um, everybody knows that James Woods can be a dick on Twitter. He says things that upset people, but it does not change how good of an actor he is. And he's a very good actor. He's very convincing. It'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a better person to cast in this role because you see him as he's like kind of interested into these dark elements. And if you were to cast somebody else that had more of a, I guess, a shinier kind of, uh, you know thing about him then it would be a little harder to believe he's perfectly cast debbie harry is also like super attractive anime she's really good in this movie like the sex scene and how right. her dialogue and everything she's just really dark i just always like debbie harry um and, like we were talking last yeah. week like she's in rock and roll yeah. um she's in tales from the dark side if i'm not mistaken really i think she's the witch in the wraparound story um, so yeah, anyways, we have um, some other good character actors in here. They're, they're very familiar looking, but I can't necessarily know their names off the top of my head. But uh, the guy who runs Videodrome is excellent. Uh, just perfect sleazeball politician. Oh, that guy. Um, I like the professor, the one that talks yes, on VHS. That, I think that's genius too. I, I like him. I like his whole shtick of like, you know, like the plot just that happens with him, how yeah. you know, I just think that's a really cool thing. It's always an idea I always like, like uploading your mind into a machine kind of thing. Yeah. Like, what would it entail? He believed that he could live longer and right. healthier through uh VHS. Um, I, I did, I, I really liked um, you're gonna James Woods's uh, secretary, she was good. Um, I don't know who she is, but she's like. A minor major character, or a major minor character. Supporting. I, yeah. I, I would say I also enjoy the director, the lady who gets him hooked up originally with Videodrome, and she ends up in one of the videos. 
the older lady. Oh, yeah, uh, she yeah, was, yeah. She was she top was notch. Really she was really good. Great. And, uh, yeah, like, so it has a lot of the elements from uh, David Cronenberg's other movies, especially mm-hmm. The Brood. Kind of like the idea that somehow you can manifest emotions into physical abnormal- abnormalities or whatever the fuck the word is I'm trying to say right now on your body. They can mm-hmm. manifest physically in you, which is a crazy thing. Um, I mean, he also has all those ideas like of rabbit or the... Uh, the uh, skin graft turns into some sort of parasitic creature and Shivers has a parasitic... A lot of crazy body horror. And this one is just such an idea that these technological waves or something, these waves that they're sending through this, like the broadcast, can actually manipulate your mind and eventually your body. And that's a really scary idea to think. Mm. And it's also something that I don't know if it's been explored as much. I know he later would kind of explore it in Existence, the video game uh, horror film with... I think it is. Is it Jude Law in that movie? Which is a really cool movie. I think you did. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy it quite a bit. Has a lot of similarities. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to kind of go through and explain what is reality and and fantasy here because our main character is suffering from delusions where he's in Videodrome torturing and partaking in that darkness and he's also being like manipulated by multiple different people at multiple different times and uh, yeah it's just bonkers there's really good special effects I believe was it mm-hmm. was it Rick Baker effects I'm not 100% sure but I know I, I don't want to say it was Rick Baker but it kind of reminds me of some some Rick Baker solid effects or something around that time um, but yeah they're just really solid effects um, and, and it cracks me up that I completely forgot about the whole government conspiracy that's like, yeah. well, basically anyone that would watch the filth that is Videodrome, which is real snuff and torture, deserves to have their brainwaves manipulated and controlled until they kind of are destroyed. Like, the, the elements of him, like, having to videotape inside his body, though, is just, it's kind of like an ultimate thing that I can imagine people that still love, uh, are nostalgic for VHS, would, at VHS would still absolutely adore the oh, idea. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the long live the new flesh is a very popular quote in this film mm-hmm. so like yeah this is it's good it's not my favorite and that the favoriteness of it probably is because I don't I'm not I don't have as much familiarity like I said I used to watch rabbit a lot and the brood and even scanners even though I think this is better than scanners for sure well I mean and I, the fly the fly course. is yeah. like you know a soft spot I think although I've only ever seen it once I did really like the fly um, you know it's just so sad of a movie I feel yeah, but, well, the flies um, just is, is is most approachable and probably is overall it probably best. Even is. if it's not somebody's favorite, I think it's probably overall best. I, I think that this one kind of suffers. Like when I was watching it, um, it reminded me, or it made me think of like like a Philip K. Dick story. Very Philip K. Dick. Where it's like I don't know, I can't really figure it out just because like there's too much conflicting information, and it's like, well, is this happening in real life? Is this an illusion? You're not supposed to know. I mean, you can't figure it out. And, and he's definitely being manipulated. But what he <coughs> sees, and, and like the end, you're 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 still wondering where he's at, right. what's happening. And so it's it's kind of like you just kind of have to take everything at face value. And I mean, that's the only way I can get through any Philip K. Dick stuff. It's like this is just the events that happen, whether <laughs> they're real or not. I don't know, but you know, it plays into Philip K. Dick's schizophrenia. Um. <laughs> I laughed out loud hysterically when the politician gets it pushed back on him, the waves or whatever. He, he shoots him with something, right? Like the weird gun that causes him to fucking melt or whatever. He's, he's turned into a weapon. Yeah. And he hits the guy with something and he like basically melts and he just turns into like this goo monster on stage. But his, Oh, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. During that mic's, presentation. His mic is still on. So like while James Wood's leaving the scene of the crime, over the PA system you hear... Oh, he, they're not. They're not politicians. They're um, 
eye doctors. <laughs> like, like he's at like an eyeglass. Yes, like, but that's a front. That's a front. Is that a front? I okay. believe it is a front because they go through and there's the big thing in the back and everything. Mm-hmm. Like they have that. Like a legitimate businessmen are really just corrupt politicians or have their fingers dipped in everything like that. Anyways, I really like the movie. I think it's one. It's shorter than you would think too. Like uh, by its reputation, you always imagine it's going to be like two hours long. Yeah, it's not that long. Uh, it's well acted. It's just baffling. Like The Brood. It's one of these ones that I'm very familiar with. The Brood that you sit and think, you're like, how the hell could you manifest your feet? Like that, just the ideas of some of these, just they're just, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Even from an early career is like shorts, like Crimes of the Future, were just bonkers. They're just bonkers ideas and they're very interesting. And they, they're just like, they hurt your head at times in a good way, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I like it quite a bit. I'd probably give it an eight and a half out of 10. I'd probably give it like a maybe a four out of five. Yeah, it's a good film. Like it's it's very it's not my favorite. Like I said, um, so I'm gonna read out John Stanley's creature features just to see because I feel like this movie probably wasn't as popular. We have to bring back the books. Videodrome, 1983, two out of five. Uh, bungled David Cronenberg picture, grotesque and repulsive under his writing and direction. James Woods is a sleazy cable TV station owner looking for porn programming who stumbles across a statistic series called Videodrome. Watching off sex and violence and a new organ grows in your brain that creates hallucinations. Uh, eventually your mind and body evolve into something more wholesome. It's a plot uh, by the moral majority to cleanse the nation. If you're having trouble following the critique, wait until you see this botched mess. Rick Baker's effects are ugly and the sex and violence were heavily cut by Universal for an R rating. Note, however, the Cronenberg restored the footage for his X-rated version for video and laser. Debbie Harry, a blondie, is the beautiful female lead, but her character is quite unsavory. She and Woods are sadists, are a turnoff. Um, this dude is kink-shaming. <laughs> All right. John Stanley, not a fan of sadistic sex. I just realized I got the terror on tape. Oh, that's so... Shut up, just read it. Okay. No, I just realized that like when he has a blank star... It's a half. I didn't know. I've been that. trying to tell you that for the three hundred times. That's when you're like three. I'm like three and a half. I don't want to ever listen to you. Hmm. Okay, so that's out of four too. Yeah. So video drone, three and a half. Out of four. Cronenberg's oh, most whacked out and challenging pre-naked lunch film has a powerhouse performance from Woods as the maverick program director of a cable TV station who discovers the existence of Videodrome. Ogori Sato's sexual tor- torture horror show. Although it at first appears that Videodrome is coming from some unknown foreign country, it eventually transpires that the show can cause deadly brain tumors in the viewer and has been concocted by some right-wing types out to eliminate that sort of human scum who would watch it in the first place. Confident supporting performances capture every little shade and nuance of their characters tight. Imaginative Imaginative writing and direction from Cronenberg and some awesome Rick Baker makeup effects underscore one of the Canadian horror maestros best. It's funny that I said almost, we said everything that these two reviews said. Like, we were like, it's yeah. confusing, but I mean, but it's fun. But also at the same time, like, these reviews are a little spoiled, aren't they? All right. I think so. Um, anyways, right. great stuff. Uh, highly recommended. And are you glad you got to see it? Like, so is that your favorite Cronenberg after The Fly? Well, what is, I've seen The Fly. I've You've seen, seen The Brood. Brood. You've seen Scanners. Seen Scanners. Dead Zone. Dead Zone. You've seen Rabbit? I don't know if I've seen Rabbit. Not Shivers. You've not seen Naked Lunch. No. So yeah, You don't I've like seen... Dead Ringers. Uh, Dead Ringers is a piece of shit. That's not, that's not how you... That's not a piece of shit. That, if... 
if there was ever a chance that I could give a movie no stars, it'd probably go to Dead Ring. Well, I award you no stars. And right. God has no stars. <laughs> Oh my god, I cannot stand uh, Stop it. That. We're not here to badmouth a, a good movie. <laughs> We're here to get your pick uh, for so next week. My pick next week. Oh yeah, but to answer your question, yeah, that's probably my second favorite after oh, The god. Fly. The Fly made me cry. Uh, Be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, next week I'm going to do Dolcuse. What the hell is that? We're going to find out. You gotta let me know what that we're, is. No, we're gonna find out. It's on Amazon for $1.99. Is it a series? No. Is it anime? Yeah. This is that one that I said I wouldn't watch? No, it's not the one he said he wouldn't watch, although that will make an appearance at some point. I just That's so old Shining. buying it. Can't wait to watch The Shining. It, the moment you put in Shining, we're putting in War and Peace. Fun, dude. I'll go back and I'll tackle. We're not doing the whole War and Peace. It's gotta be broken up in parts. No. Yes, it's six hours long. I don't care if it's six It's not. Hours it's actually long. in three movies. Guess what? Their Internet Movie Database lists it as three fucking separate movies. Well, the Internet Movie Database is wrong. It's not wrong. It's the Internet Movie Database. It was made in Soviet Russia to, you know, show... Yeah, but you know how the Soviets are always trying to throw everything together. All these countries now, they're one country. They, they, they That's kept, why it's broken up. They kept running out of money, so they had a, you know, it's like the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is one word. We bankrupt Belarus to make war and peace. <laughs> All right, we're done. We're out of here. All right, bye. Okay, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that jazz. Um, last week, I basically asked you, uh, I put it out and said, ask me anything. Um, so I, I don't know if it was on YouTube or anything, but I did it on Facebook. So I didn't have a question of the week last week. I was being a lazy boy. So let's go Southport Rocker. Sounds like My Sweet Satan is based on Richard Casso Jr., nicknamed the Acid King, who murdered his friend while on acid. He kept yelling at his friends, say you love Satan, while stabbing him multiple times. Wasn't aware that's where a uh, clip came from in your intro. Um, he also mentions Hospital Driver. Haha, ha, Chopper is a great movie. He had a house just around from my grandparents, and I recall when I was a kid, police raiding the house. Had a roof full of guns and stuff. His first book is very good. Then his stories got more elaborate, where it was bordering, if not all the way reality blurring into fantasy. So yeah, you know what's weird? Like, I, I think My Sweet Satan's a great film, and as possibly exploitative as it is, possibly. I don't even really know. Like, I, I feel like, like I always... Like, I don't like that Ted Bundy movie. I felt weird about Lloyd's of Chaos, but when I watch My Sweet Satan, I don't feel like it is rubbing me the wrong way like a lot of other movies do. Maybe that's just because the time I saw it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a hypocrite. Aren't we all? Jason Bovey, my question for Dave, of all the roles you've played over the years, which one challenged you the most as an actor? Oh, my, I think I've answered this before, but probably change every time I answer it. Um, in, in Halloween Spookies, I had a, uh, a monologue to memorize, and it was a role I felt like I was kind of born to play. And I remember when Brandon Salkill wrote that movie, he I was the other actor in it, and he usually played like the leader, the lead roles in it. He was going to write it, Dustin was going to direct it, and we were both, me and Brandon were going to star in it. That short, the middle short in there. And uh, when I read the script, I assumed he was going to play the louder, the high, like kind of hyper character, which I am in a lot of ways. I am that character, but he could do it very easily as well. And he's a, you know, he could definitely do that. He's a more animated actor than me, I would say, although I'm fairly animated. He's just like the king of animated acting. So when he was like, I want you to play that role, I was like, you know what? I really could do this. And I, I don't know if it was the most challenging. It felt right, but I definitely made sure I had it down to what I wanted to play it. So I, I put myself through a lot on there. And I remember really memorizing headless and getting that, those lines down. Uh, physically, it would probably be the Batman, just because I literally watched what I ate for like six months 
more than I normally do. I used to be, I, I, I always exercise, but you know, you get older, you don't worry too much about what you eat as much, you know, and I really was strict, strict, strict about it. So physically that was the most challenging role. It was kind of a hellacious shoot, to be honest. Like the first time we did, it was super cold. And then we came back and it was super hot. So you got like the worst, you know, like the worst of both worlds. And I just had to, you know, like pick people up and walk in high boots and walk through cricks and wear a gas mask and shit. So physically, that was the hardest role for sure. So I guess that challenged me physically the most uh, as far as memorization. Maybe something like Rip, Halloween Spookies, or Headless. Um, here we go. Jason, and then we have Rick Rico Gomez. Santo black and white movies are the best ones. The color ones look cheap production. Uh, maybe they do. I don't know. I didn't notice it so much. But I'm used to watching real cheap movies all the time. Um, PJ Phillips, what got you into collecting horse slice exploitation? From your old collection, what is your most prized piece? What got me collecting is uh, my father was a collector of like certain things, knives, outboard motors, uh, things like that. He collected lots of stuff growing up. My grandfather was big into movies, not his dad. My ma's dad was big into movies. He always used to record movies, bring down old universal tapes, you know, like the Wolfman and shit uh, that he bought. Uh, he'd watch it because he loved that stuff and give me the tapes. So it just kind of felt like, you know, I was into the films very young growing up. And my dad was a collector. I had that collector bug. You know, where some people collect certain things, or I used to collect lots of things. Like, I'd collect superhero cards or comic books. I used to collect stuff like that. Um, but I always liked movies. I'd collect, you know, toys, too, as, as when I was real young. I gotta have the whole, I used to call it election. My dad would always laugh, because I, I want it for the election, the collection, you know. So, a, as I got older, um, you know, it just turned to movies. Like, I remember actually starting, I used to record movies myself. I mean, like 10, 11, I'd go down to the video store after my grandfather used to do it for us, you know, the new releases. That's a lot of what a lot of people did. So I'd re, I'd run all these tapes and put them on the tapes and have my mom drive me to different video stores around and try to get all of it. But then when the internet hit, um, I, I, I when video stores started closing, I'd buy, try to buy some of their tapes and everything like that. When the internet hit, you realized that like half.com and stuff, you could start picking up VHSs for a buck. You know, I was buying stuff that was still sealed. You know, you, even the most expensive VHSs you're paying are Nightlife, 1989 with Scott Grimes for a dollar, for $10, sealed. Like, I'm like, oh, shit, that's a bit pricey then, but it's sealed. And now that movie probably sells $100 sealed. I don't fucking know. But so you start collecting. You start getting into it. And before long, it was DVDs came along, started grabbing those, and then Blu-ray, then 4K, and and it just was downhill ever since. And, and I love movies. I love watching movies. So, like, I... So that's what really got me into collecting. It just was, I guess, fate and my mentality. Um, so, uh, and he also says, I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. Thank you. Uh, Tempo Tapos, happy to hear you recovered from the virus. I haven't caught it yet, but it's been doing a great number uh, on my family this winter. Only one death, though, so it could be worse. It's nice to have movies to watch when the world is unpleasant and chaotic. I'm sorry about your loss. Yeah, um, I lost a great aunt to it. Um, I mean, she was older, but and I hadn't seen her in a long time, but... We used to go over there for Christmas and everything and when my, my parents were alive and everything. So she was a very nice person, very good person. But yeah, it, COVID makes things shittier just for the whole fact that, you know, you can't go places or hospitals when somebody's sick and shit and it just sucks. It really does. Simon, I know like a lot of people are, aren't worried about the virus anymore, but you still, there's still a lot of restrictions and everything, yada, yada, yada. And a lot of people are dying. So uh, Simon Henderson, so glad you like Choppa. It's a, I sound like an asshole, but I, every time I hear Chopper, I have to say it like that. It's such an underrated movie. It was a big hit here in New Zealand and Australia. I'm guessing you've seen the New Zealand film Once Were Warriors. Be cool to hear your thoughts or, or a review of it. No, I haven't. 
I know that it's like a big uh, a film, and I have a DVD copy of it that I picked up years back. Um, uh, I see that there's a Blu-ray copy too that I, I'd want to grab before I watched it. But uh, yeah, sounds really good. Um, ja Punk, Paul Verhoeven did a movie called Black Book, set in Netherlands during World War II. The plot twist in it are sharp, worth looking for. Thank you, Doctor Hyder. When can we expect the 22 Shots 1994 show? My sweet Satan is amazing. Van Beber is the ultimate edge lord. Satan approves. Um, 94 in late April, early May, I think is what we're gunning for. Kentuckinator, sorry you caught that COVID I started. Started. I don't know. Sounds suspicious. Milo169, I checked out My Sweet Satan because of the clip in your 94 intro and loved it. I'm glad. I'm not familiar with Jim Van Bever's work, but we'll definitely pick up the Arrow release at some point. Yeah, you gotta have it. Uh, Dead Beat at Dawn is guerrilla filmmaking and it's fine. It's awesome. Fight scenes. It also has My Sweet Satan and Roadkill on there, too. So he's also a random question. You seem to enjoy a range of different movies and genres. Are there any types of movie, movies or genres you tend to stay away from? Shockumentaries, rom-coms, Canadian cinema in general? That's a joke because I... Uh, for on 22 shots of moods and horror, I always made jokes that I hated Canadian cinema just to piss off moods. It's not true. Uh, but uh, it's still funny to me. Um, but I had to stop because people thought I was serious. Who would think I'm serious? Um, I don't watch documentaries. I've seen Faces of Death and like Mondo Connie, Mondo Magic. Um, I think that's enough for me. I'm not into it. I'm not into like the Faces of Gore, Traces of Death. I've seen parts of Traces of Death. I just don't. It's not something I like. I don't watch documentaries. I don't like them. I don't enjoy them. And uh, Faces of Death is a little bit different because a lot of that's fake. And Mondo Kani is uh, of importance to me because it, it helped inspire stuff like Cannibal Holocaust and, and it has a Riz Ortolani score. It's just uh, also kind of a beautiful movie. But after after watching it, you know, that uh, is it Franco Prosperi uh, setting up all that shit and it's all bullshit. It kind of rubs you the wrong way to even watch it. Um, I know there's so many of them. I bumped the audio there. It's probably gonna be a little off. Sorry. But uh, I don't watch documentaries. Not my thing. I don't care if other people watch them. I'm not, I'm, I'm not for censorship or anything like that. I'm not going to condemn people for watching or checking out whatever the fuck they want as long as nobody's really getting hurt or anything like that. But uh, shockumentaries have the real death footage, although not made for it. It's still in there. It's an iffy thing. I'm just not into it. It's not my thing. Uh, Mark Zielinski, loved Remote when I was a kid. It's not the greatest movie, but when you're a kid, you don't care and fit all my needs at the time in the early 90s. Never got a DVD release until the recent Blu-ray release you have. My local video store used to carry the VHS for years, and it was only the way to watch and relive that nostalgia. And be set, yes, oh my god, remote. That hidden gem for young kids. Non-Christmas Home Alone, lol. Jason Bovey, 124.31. Believe it or not, I didn't know your top five, Dave. I was uh, only aware of your love of Romero. Just couldn't face a 10-hour podcast. I don't blame you. He's referencing to my top 50 favorite directors. Ken Coakley, have you ever been a to a drive-in? If so, what was the best double feature? The same applies to midnight showings or movie marathons at an indoor theater. I, I don't... I have been to a drive-thru as a kid, and uh, there's one around here, and I don't go to drive-thru uh, that much or, or do those like marathon screenings, believe it or not. Um... I have ADHD, and I also, now as I'm older, I fucking fall asleep at like 7.30. I can't imagine being in a theater and being like, I'd fall asleep right away. Unless, you know, I was prepared. I should really go to all-night screening or something like that. I thought about having one in my house, like doing a 6 to midnight or something like that, 6 to 2 o'clock, and just watching like five movies or something like that, have a bunch of friends over, come in and out. could be fun. Um, But no, I I never really did um, those. I, I think... The double feature drive through I saw was probably Richie Rich and Batman Forever. Yeah, not necessarily the cream of the crop there. I have another question. How can you afford all those movies? Okay, so yeah, um, I buy a lot of movies. I wait for a lot of sales, too. 
and I buy in bulk a lot of times like the vinegar syndrome I will do the yearly say the yearly subscription so like I make sure I save for that so that way I get all the stuff I want get the half off on the sub label stuff also I get a lot of movies to review like the uh, movies are sent to me to review so I don't buy absolutely everything I I never put the movies I um, that I'm supposed to review in with the collection until after the review. So that deal for that kind of stuff, I don't like. Um, so I do get a lot of stuff to review sent to me. So that that's a, a big aspect in that. So like I don't buy absolutely everything you see me cover on here. Who could? Who really could? I mean, unless you are a little bit more well off. Um, I mean, I, I have a decent job. I don't have kids. I don't have any debt. So, therefore, like, I can sometimes, you know, buy something that I, maybe I should not buy this right now, but I'll buy it because, you know, I don't have anybody else counting on me to live. So, I do spend a lot on, I don't get absolutely everything to review, not even close. I buy a lot, but I get a lot to review. And also, I've been collecting since I was 11, 12 years old. So, that's like 23, 20, close to 25 years of collecting. So, uh, you just, and I don't sell off stuff too much. Like, I've gotten rid of stuff, duplicates or stuff that I had, like, upgraded and there's no special features, but I rarely do that. Um, so, I, I have a lot. I've accumulated a lot. And uh, as I hit a certain age, you know, uh, I, I do wait for sales and I do, uh, I'm an opportune, like, buyer too. If I know it's, that's a good price on something, I'll grab it. Um, Isamisio, sorry to hear you got sick. And Jeremy sounds like he's going through it too. On the bright side, at least you have antibodies now, which are more or less as effective as those booster shots. I still need to get mine. Hope you feel better soon. Stay hydrated. Any tips on your movie collection across, um, any tips on moving a movie collection across country? Best cushioning slash packaging methods and most affordable carriers to use. This is something that I keeps plaguing my mind because I do not, I do want to go back to the West Coast eventually. Another okay. So answer that one first. I didn't move like I didn't have to put these in a plane. I didn't have to put my movie collection in a movie truck or anything like that. But what I do is, and I've had to move a few times, and it's a motherfucker carrying these. I actually got a double hernia carrying a fifty-gallon tub of VHS up some steep stairs. Yeah, and I mean, I probably had the double hernia. It's a lot of hereditary shit. It's also working concrete. I worked concrete. I lifted weights a lot. So that shit just happens. And my, my, one of my grandfathers had a hernia when he was old, you know. So it, it's probably hereditary and in some aspects. And also just carrying and lifting shit like a jackass. And manual, a lot of years of manual labor. But it's no joke to move a lot of uh, collections. So what I'll always do, um, since I'm not moving them very far, I will tend to... I keep them in a certain order, so I've learned that when you're putting them away in boxes, I use boxes or, or, or totes or tubs, um, I'll buy, you know, like 15, 20 totes or tubs and get as much as I can. And then when I, if you're moving really far, I don't know how to recommend this, I'll, I will like kind of load them up in the tubs or totes as best as I can, make sure that they're clean and dry, you don't store them somewhere gross and then pull them out and throw your movies in there or anything like that. Make sure they're clean and dry. And if you want, you can put like bubble wrap in there surrounding the tubs. But I will do, I'll put like a row in plastic bags. I know that sounds weird. It's not really necessarily for the protection of the movies. It's to keep them in the order that you had them in. Like, so you'll, you'll pull them out instead of sorting, you know, a hundred, 200 movies in a tub that get all mixed up, even if they're stacked well, a, now you have to sort like 15, 20 bags in order. I know that sounds weird, but it really helps with that. Um, or you could possibly put them in smaller boxes within the tubs that would help with that. So like I'll, I'll load up the tubs in order. I'll, I'll have the room set up like shelves and everything like that. So I did here. I had the room all set up and built ready to go empty shelves. And I started taking them over, you know, 10, 15 tubs at a time. And I started unloading them on the shelves and I'd go back and do it, back and do it, back and forth. It's very time consuming. It takes a couple days. It's very hard work, 
but uh, you kind of get in the mode and you're just kind of like a crazy mad person just doing it all the time. But if you had to ship an entire collection at once, I do not know. That would be nerve-wracking. I don't, I don't know how to go about it. But uh, I guess that's just some small little things like that that I could possibly help you out with there, how I did it. Um, the, the gray totes help. I mean, the big totes or the tubs, but make sure you don't stack them bad and make sure you stack them right. You can put layers of cardboard, cardboard in there with stuff. If you work at a place that has cardboard boxes, maybe ask for a couple of them if they're clean and everything. So this is something that keeps plaguing my mind because I do not want to go... Okay, so another question. Which horror character, not the actress actor, have you lo always low-key had a thing for? For me, in terms of horror, I've always liked Pinhead. No surprise there. And Pyramid Head, Silent Hill. I mean, they are just so fine. Rawr. Ha! Oh, boy. I should have pre-read that question earlier. I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, a horror character I've always had a thing for. Um, geez, I don't really have one off the top. I like how female Cinnabite looks. I always liked how she looked in Part 2. I thought Barbie Wilde as the female Cinnabite always looked great. Shoot a Sassy from Nightbreed. Shoot a sassy from Nightbreed. That was one. Uh, <laughs> uh, she always uh, was great looking. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of horror characters or, or moments um, um, that just look great. Um, I know somebody once told me the zombie from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> and I, I love that idea. That's a great one. Uh, nothing wrong with liking the zombie from Hocus Pocus. Wink, wink. As Doug Jones plays that zombie. Um I can't think of that. Those are the ones that just pop in my head. Shuna Sassy from uh, some from um, uh, Nightbreed. Yeah, that's that's one that would do it for me. That's just crazy monster kind of deal. Um, and there's lots of just like unhinged crazy characters that I find attractive because they have that like dangerous quality about them. In any moment, they could just cut your head off, and you're just like, well, I'm not talking about like a Jason Voorhees. I would talk about like those ones that are just like slightly unhinged to the point where you feel like uh, like a Anthony Perkins or something, where you're you're like intrigued by them, like to the point where you want to like uh, Norman Bates, and then before you're dead. So those kind of characters, I would say. Um, and then Peter McCain, movies you were hyped for that you found the most disappointing. Oh, good question. Um, you know, it used to happen a lot when I was younger. I'd be hyped for something and then you'd be kind of rather disappointed by it. But over time, like first time I saw Dead Next Door when I was like 13, I was like, I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. But that movie grew on me so much and it's one of my favorites now. So that was one like first time viewing that you're a little disappointed, but you go back and it became one of my favorite movies. It was just like when I was getting into like super low budget cinema, like 12, 13, and you don't really know what to expect. But then after you start seeing like the heart behind it, you love it. So I'm trying to think of more of a modern film that disappointed me to an aspect where it didn't it didn't uh kind of i didn't love it as much as i thought i would um I, I like i hate calling out certain titles but um i don't, can't think of any more modern ones that i i was think hmm let's just go with that one but that one ended up becoming one of my favorite movies so i'm trying to stay positive there jason fetters best box set in your collection that is really hard um like where I don't even know like to go about like do you do you go by picture quality do you go about the movie do you go about how many movies are in the set there's just so many great box sets it's impossible to determine what the greatest box set is in a set um I love my Dawn of the Dead 4K box set and I guarantee that that uh that um haunted uh, uh folklore box set is going to be amazing I haven't opened it yet though but I'm really like looking I love how that sucker's looking over there very uh happy to have that I haven't had a chance to open it so um Let's just go with that for now. But there's some also some big ones too that have tons of shit in there. Like um, that Shaw Brothers set is amazing. The uh, oops, spilling coffee every fucking where. Uh, don't want to spill coffee on my movies. 
That's more important. Um, I'm, a, I'm a klutz. No, no coffee on the movies. That's what matters. Coffee on me. That's that's not a big deal. But uh, yeah, so let's just go with the uh, Dawn of the Dead 4K set. It's always going to be something like that for me. Um, then we have um, Chet Turner. Do you ever relook at films and review them again since you have changed your opinion on them? Yeah, I do. Um, for like the Patreon picks and people picking movies on here, I do limit it to movies that I haven't covered in the weekly show format. But they can pick ones I covered years ago. Like, um, and I'll rewatch something and have an appreciation for it. Like we said, Tromeo and Juliet. Um, rewatching that, I loved it a lot more than I ever did, and I was glad to rewatch it. So rewatching movies is a must. It's just that there's not enough time. Like a lot of times, you like Scar. Scarface I liked when I saw it and then I had like kind of was down on it and I guarantee if I I don't dislike Scarface at all don't get me wrong but I guarantee if I rewatched it now I, I would love it just as much as I did the first time I saw it there was a time frame in the middle where I just wasn't feeling it as much but Pulse was one that I watched and I didn't love and then I had to rewatch it more for the summer series and I really liked Pulse I got Pulse a little bit better it was more I don't want to say approachable but I understood it a little bit more and it was just something that was just better like when you hear a lot of other people some movies need context some movies you just don't get some movies you don't understand sometimes you're in a bad mood um sometimes you grow up and you dislike a movie or you like it now then you didn't it changes so it is i do rewatch movies uh, i just can't rewatch everything that i've seen you know over and over again because there's so many new movies so many new releases that i want to check out and watch and everything like that so yeah it is uh, i do rewatch movies and i do change my mind sometimes they go up sometimes they go down usually they go up i don't really you know i uh familiarity is uh, something that has always helped me enjoy movies more um, so, so there we go. Nick Moore, only questions about the show. So only questions about the show. So asking for your hand in marriage is out of the question then. Uh, I smiley face. Um, do you have a lot of money? <laughs> are you rich? Uh, what country are you from? Can I get dual citizenship? Uh, do you have a lot of movies? These are the questions I'm going to ask you. And then I'm going to rob, Never mind. But yeah, I'm just saying dual citizenship, uh, could be interesting. Uh, <laughs> Marry for dual citizenship. I'm not above it. Corey Walter, do you separate an artist from their work when it comes to movies like Victor Salva, Roman Polanski, etc.? Watching Clown House now, and it's generally a good movie. Also, I never heard your opinion on it. You know, when I initially watched Clown House, I didn't know about the stuff. I put it in, well, it was 19, almost 50, at least 16 years ago. I, I popped in Clown House for the first time to watch it. And uh, I didn't know I had the DVD. I still have the DVD. And I was watching it. And I was like half an hour in, I was like, but this movie is uncomfortable as shit. And I see like little kids running around in their underwear and it's filmed strange. And I was like, you know what? Uh, the person I was watching, they were like, let's not watch this. I'm not, I, I don't, this is weird. And I didn't finish it. And then years later, I found out, um, dude puts a pedophile and he molested a kid um, and everything like that. And I was like, makes sense. It really felt like that. So like if you're watching a movie and it feels like it's a fucking pervert, I mean, and I'm not talking about Hisi, Yasu, Sato, those movies all sound perverse and everything. And I love it. They're adults though. But when you're watching a movie surrounded with kids and stuff, and it feels like a perverse movie, it's just uncomfortable as shit. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And so I don't know. I do separate the artist from the art. Like I'm never going to not watch a movie because I don't like, you know, like I was talking about Videodrome and a lot of people just won't watch a James Woods movie now because he's an asshole on Twitter. And it's just like, that's never going to happen with me. Uh, like there's so many people involved with the movie. Um, I could see why people don't watch Victor Salva movies because the kid was molested on the set and he's still working today, so it bothers them. Roman Polanski's movies, and this is going to sound really shitty and shallow, his movies are a lot better than Victor Salva's movies and they have a historical importance and everything like that, so I'm more likely to watch a Roman Polanski movie or a Victor Salva movie any day. Like, I don't... 
give a shit really too much about Victor Salva's movies. So if I never saw another one, I wouldn't care too much. I'll watch them. I'm not going to seek them out, stuff like that. Um, I've seen Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2, you know, some other things. But his story in general and that he's still working and he still had access to kids long after he was in jail and everything like powder. And it's just, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way and I can understand that. But I do generally separate the artist from the art. I mean, how many pieces of shit were involved with films? Every movie you see that you love, there was probably some piece of shit somewhere. And as same thing with a lot of companies. Like we, everybody orders from Amazon, but, you know, Amazon literally is like owning the world and stuff there the, the motherfucker who ran amazon for years built a yacht so big he has to pay for a bridge to get taken down to move there it's just fucking insane like um unfortunately being a consumer or being somebody that likes the arts you're gonna run into bad th- like things that you know are made by bad people and some people have a line where they draw it and i'm fine with it and i understand it and i don't hate on anyone else for doing what they do or believe in what they believe in but personally i will watch roman polanski movies and um, I, I'm gonna. Um, certain directors, I won't be watching any more of their movies. And I won't be covering any more of their movies. and Because they're still active. And I still feel like possibly covering them you know, could make... I don't, I don't know, not that I have any word or something. Could change somebody's opinion about seeking them out. And spreading it. And I know that sounds weird. And like Victor Salva and Roman Polanski are way past that level where everybody knows who they are anyways and everybody's had spoken on them and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, I'm not a moral compass for anyone, okay? Um, I'm going to watch Roman Polanski movies and possibly I'll watch a Victor Salva movie. Um, yeah, so, but I, I'm not going to sit there and like, so like people buying bootlegs of Victor Salva, good, buy bootlegs of his movies, fuck him. Don't get that guy no money. Uh, so, yeah, I understand, though. I, I'm not going to condemn people for that or anything like that for watching it. Like, and also, uh, some of those movies are historically, like, I know people watch Triumph of the Will and stuff like that and uh, uh, Birth of a Nation, and those were made by, like, not awful people, but they have a historical importance, and some people can learn possibly from them. When it comes to uh, <laughs> Clown House, I don't know if you're going to learn much from that, except this is how... Uh, a movie that's made by a pedophile who's possibly molesting kids on the set, you know. But there's other aspects of the movie that people enjoy, like it's creepy, it's scary, you know, the clowns. So there's other things about it. It's not like I'm not going to sit there and be like, just because you watch it, you're a pedophile and you are you deserve to be investigated by the government and shit. That's nonsense. But I understand why people don't watch it. I understand why people just can't have to separate the artist from the art. And I, I try to do it. I do it, you know, every once in a while. Um, I, I probably can't, but I'm just human. Um, Aaron Mazzola, have there ever been a movie you couldn't finish because it was too disturbing? Good question. Um, honestly, here's one. Um, I remember I, it just was a certain mood. Um, I won't watch like Squirmfest and, and that kind of stuff where it's just like people just like eating shit and stuff. And, and, and no, I'm not watching that. I ain't watching that. Uh, to me, that's not a film. That's not a movie. I'm sorry. I can't do it. Um, but there was a movie called Snuff 102. And at the time I put it in to watch it, it's Massacre Video put it out. It has a huge, uh, not, I don't know if it's a huge falling, but it has a reputation for being a pretty fucked up movie. And the mood I was in, it started and it was like three minutes in and I just was mad. It was pissing me off. It's just like, I can't watch this fucking right now. This is bothering me. It's making me angry. I don't want to watch this right now. And I never went back to it. And it might've been my mood. It might've been the idea. I just don't know. I just couldn't watch it. it fucking pissed me off. And I just couldn't watch it. So it has. Maybe it, maybe it was the disturbing nature of it. Maybe it was how it was made. I just don't know. It just was bothering me. So it's happened. 
Is there a movie that you absolutely love but you can never bring yourself to watch in a, in a second time? This could be for any number of reasons. Maybe the ending was a huge surprise once, but seeing it again would be boring because you know how it ends. Maybe the movie was too real emotional. Uh, no. Uh, I'm a weird person. If a movie can make me feel emotional or sad, I will watch it. And I will live in that moment. Like, I know Cannibal Holocaust, a lot of people won't watch it after one time. But uh, it's as fucked up as it is and exploitive as it is. is and I, but I think there's a lot of genius in that movie. And uh, I do like how it can fucking make me feel awful in a way. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe just, just feel that you're alive or something, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, the cinematic version of cutting yourself to know that you can still feel or something like that. Um, but yeah, uh, so no on that. If I like the movie, I will watch it again, even if it's messed up. Um, I don't want to watch August Underground Mortem again just because it's too gross. Uh, it's brutal. Um, and there's some movies that I feel like if I know the twist, maybe it won't be as impactful, like Unbreakable or Sixth Sense or something like that. Uh, what movie have you rewatched the most? Probably Day of the Dead, Return of the Living Dead, or something that I watched a million times as a kid, like uh, The Goonies or Monster Squad or Running Man or something along those lines. Sean Donahue, um, Dawn of the Dead maybe something like that sean donahue what is your political status on slip covers well uh personally i uh, i don't really go out of my way to collect slip covers i have bought a couple just slip covers i know that's weird to say but i did buy the corruption slip cover that vinegar center just put out because i had the six hours off and i was like why not spend it on the slip cover fuck it two bucks for the slip cover add to my order and i did buy the rudy ray Moore box set that's just a box to put my movies in which I never typically do, but maybe I'm just falling into it. I do the yearly subscription. A lot of those movies show up with slipcovers. I like the slipcovers, but I won't go out of my way to buy out-of-print slipcover or anything like that. Or if it doesn't have the slipcover, so be it. I'm not going to have a heart attack about it. I like them. I don't take them off. I leave them. I don't put them above anything. It's just, uh, it is a piece of cardboard. I'm in it for the movies. The slipcover is nice. I like how it looks sometimes. Um, but I will not spend extra for the slipcover typically. Um, only one uh, company would bother me not having a slipcover and that's the Vestron releases because everyone I've had somehow came with a slipcover and it just seems like it's tradition to have the slipcovers on at that point. It's just like a, it's almost like a stupid, uh, obsessive compulsive thing where they all have slipcovers. Might as well keep now the slipcover on there now because every single one of them has a slipcover. Now, if I would have started off the beginning and the first two or first three didn't have a slipcover, slipcover, no slipcovers, no slipcover, slipcover, I wouldn't give a shit. I would have been over on there. But now since they all have slipcovers, it's almost like the point where it's like a tradition I follow. And I barely follow any tradition. So, like, but people just buying slipcovers for the sake of buying by themselves, selling them for like $20, $15, it's fucking insane to me. It's fucking insane. Like, also, it's insane to see in some of the VHS prices. People selling VHS $400 fucking dollars for, like, tip, a lot of typical shit, too. It's just like, I can't. I won't. I'll never get involved in that game. Even though I have a lot of these VHS sitting on the shelves, so and maybe they're worth something. I don't even want to go to the trouble of digging them out, making sure they play correctly, looking through for mold, and then dealing with the VHS collectors. It's not worth it for me to deal with them. Honestly. I'd rather just keep my VHS sitting on the shelf. So be it. I, I don't watch them. I'd watch them if I didn't have it on DVD or Blu-ray. But a lot of these, I, I a couple of them I don't. A couple of them are pretty rare. I saw somebody selling the Shivers for Todd Sheets for $220. I know that's overpriced. It's overpriced. Shivers, Todd Sheets. I bought that from Todd Sheets at a, at a fucking convention for $20 on the spot not more than five years ago. So that's fucked up. That's fucked up to sell that for $220 when Todd Sheets himself would sell it to you for $20. Bucks. That's fucked. I know it's rare. 
But just, I wish Todd Sheets had a hundred of those so he could turn around and sell them for a hundred bucks a pop or just or set, put them up on that sale and say, here's 50 bucks. I know it is what it is. The market's what people will pay for it. But that's just insane. Uh, so insane to me that I'll never buy another VHS because of it. Fucking bonkers. Um, I know that's a tirade there. Lawrence, uh, Lawrence, uh, Maisie, have you ever finally got rawhead? Have you finally got rawhead Rex mate? Still have no idea why Clyde Barker hates that movie so much. I think it's a good movie. Um, yeah, I've had Clyde, uh, rawhead Rex for years. I, I, did we talk about rawhead Rex at one point? Cause it was, it never got a proper DVD release in the States and it did, but it was out of print really quick. I'm glad to have it on Blu-ray. Finally. I have not got to watch the George Pavlou movie. Um, I like it. I think Little Devils by George Pavlou is also really good. I'm not a huge fan of Transmutations, but his other two films are fun. I can understand, I guess, Clyde Barker probably was expecting a lot more, but I don't know how you make Rawhead Rex on a budget and expect it to be anything but what the movie you got. I mean, it's fun. It's got a monster. Pisses on a priest. I'm, I'm in. I, I really should pop in my Blu-ray and then rewatch it. It's been years, but I remember liking the movie. Um, Troy Haworth. Love Troy Haworth. Some films you regard as objectively good that you personally just don't enjoy. That's a great question. Um, a couple from last year, or last few years, Coming Home in the Dark. Well made, well acted, well shot, beautiful location. I understand the message you're going for, but the way they go about it angered me to a point where I just lost interest completely in the movie. I lost all suspense. I lost all believability in the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the movie. Um, so a lot of people are still on for the ride, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Eden Lake, another movie that I think is well made and it provokes emotion, but there's an aspect about it where it becomes too overly coincidental for me to enjoy the film anymore. So I think that's probably a good movie I don't like. The Dark Knight, I don't hate it, but I don't think it's this masterpiece either, but everyone else loves it. And I think it's well made, well acted movie, has some cool things, but I, I do see it as just a superhero movie made in the style of Heat. I don't think it's anything too special, except that at the heart of it, it has some really great performances in it. And that's really what I think drives it. But hey, I I love the movies for performances, so I can't hate on it, really. It's just not a movie that I love, that makes any sense. I'm sure there's lots of slow, great movies that I don't absolutely love that I watched and I just didn't have any connection to. Um, that happens sometimes. Now, there's movies that I've watched um, before and I didn't have a connection through that I thought were great movies that I don't love. But over time, I've come around to them. Like The Exorcist is a movie that uh, objectively is so historically important that I couldn't rate it anything less than a perfect movie, even if it's not one of my personal favorites, or Evil Dead 2. They just can't rate these low, because they're so historically important that I just would feel fucking stupid. And I do enjoy them on the aspect of their historical importance, and just looking into the story about them. And But over time, like rewatching The Exorcist, I had a connection to it this time. And it wasn't the stuff that I, I don't think a lot of people connect to. It was kind of like the story between... The priest, uh, you know, Father Karras and his story and everything like that got to me. It really touched me as an as an adult, you know. Um, talking about priests touching people isn't <laughs> just doesn't sound right, but you know what I'm saying, right? So, I would say stuff like The Dark Knight or Coming Home in the Dark, I think, are probably very good movies that I don't love, that I'll never love. I don't think, I, or even like, I don't think I'll ever love those movies. I'm sorry. Or Alone, which came out a couple years back, which just very cat and mouse, very well made, but feels very typical to me a story that i've seen and i don't ever want to see again if that makes any sense uh person being chased in the woods by another person i get it i'm over it i don't and sometimes i love those movies other times i don't that one's not something i'd ever care to revisit and it's not a bad movie at all so those ones those are the ones i'd say james higgins what is your favorite your favorite non-horror film maybe go go to from your childhood for me it's stand by me or the goonies great choices for my childhood favorite 
it would be the Monster Squad, little monsters, uh, Ernest Scared Stupid, stuff like that. But my personal, let's go the Wild Bunch. Can't go wrong with the Wild Bunch being your favorite. Uh, Lacey Lou, what collector's edition DVD were you really hyped about but then disappeared? Why? Disappointed with? Oh, I think that's because supposed to be disappointed with. Um, ooh, that's a good question. I should have really... Um, sometimes I do these on, I, I copy and paste them. I don't, I like to be on the cuff about things like that. Uh, geez. Um, let me think of one, a collector's edition I was very excited about then disappointed with. I don't know if I really have one. Um, there's sometimes that I, um, I didn't watch it yet, but this is not really the movie's fault. Um, or the release's fault. Killing spree. The new one. I was very disappointed to find out that wasn't remastered from film elements. I know it's not on them, but still it, it disappointed me i didn't know that kind of bumps me out so let's go with that one i haven't even got a chance to pop it in maybe it looks fucking fantastic anyways but that is one uh mike merriman favorite and least favorite comedy commentary tracks i really like the stuff by guys like troy howworth cat allinger tim lucas those are all top-notch stuff um the only commentary track that bothered me enough to be like that's enough of that and it's nothing really personally bad commentary track it's just that ideology i I completely disagreed with his ideology about the movie and it just was like well i just i'm not in the same planet as you i I can't listen to this commentary was bring me the head of alfredo garcia on the arrow release there was somebody who basically said now benny who is war notes character is an he's not a likable character he's unrelatable and i was like now, he's not a perfect person, but I don't think he's unlikable, and I don't think he's unrelatable at all. I think everybody has that kind of maybe felt like a loser at times and maybe wanted that vindiction. I just don't can't see it. I mean, I maybe he's saying it because he doesn't want to um, glorify Benny, and I mean, he's Benny's not perfect, but Benny is interesting and likable and I think relatable. So I turned that commentary track off, and I did not care for it very much. Um, so let's go with that one. But the ones I really do like are kind of the film historians. I always dig that. And I remember always listening to Rob Zombie's commentary tracks. I haven't listened to them in years. Maybe they suck now, but I remember liking those. Um, Peter McCain, I think you should go through the top 100 movies in the Internet Movie Database and rate them. Not really a question, but would be a nice segment. Sounds great, but it would be very time-consuming. Not enough time in the world. For all the movie things I want to do. Ronald Postillo, are you uh, big on the posters that come with a lot of the Screen Factory releases? I I know a lot of people like them. Me, not so much. How about you? Um, Some of them look okay. I don't ever hang them up. I don't ever buy them. I don't order direct from Screen Factory very often. Screen Factory, I usually wait to grab on Bull Moose when they're a good price, or I wait for their sales, or I wait for Hamilton Books, because a lot of their stuff is very expensive. I mean... And they don't have like a yearly subscription or a, a, like a bundle where you can get a discount. So I, I wait on a lot of the Screen Factory stuff. Sometimes I can't wait like the thing or Return of the Dead's like, I need to have those ASAP because those are just movies I hold in such high regard. But um, uh, some of their some of their are a poster artwork and their their cases I don't love. Some are good. Some are okay. Some are bad, just like any other company. But I prefer the original artwork. I like, you know, that's why I love Kino and its simplicity. It's just original artwork on a fucking case, and it's a dark side, and I love it. I like it. It's all uniform. I dig it. I dig it. So, um, where are we at now? Uh, Jonathan Wilhelm, best way you found to keep dust off your collection besides watching them? <laughs> There's not really. Steve Friedel, uh, I could use an answer for that, too. It's really hard to do, honestly. Uh, a lot of them are sealed, but dust still gets on there. These aren't too dusty. Like, thing is uh there's dust there though you got to keep them uh out of a main not in a room where a lot of dust is but you know dust comes through the fucking dust dust is everywhere it's hard to keep things not dusty um the one thing i would uh warn is um you could probably get like um just a little 
one of these uh, uh, dusters and go over the top of them and everything like that. But uh, I don't really have a great way to keep the dust off them. <laughs> um, these are not as dusty as expected right here. Sometimes if they're sitting on certain shelves, they'll get very dusty. Um, keep them in a room by themselves. Don't let any pets in there. Don't let anybody smoke in the fucking house or in the room. The very least, the room they're in. Um, keep them isolated in the room if you can. That'll keep dust off. Don't put them in a dusty area like a basement. That'll probably help very much. But uh, dust gets everywhere. I mean, you can't fight dust. It's every fucking where. These aren't, like I said, as dusty as expected looking at them. Sometimes movies come to you very dusty, too, or certain shelves will have them. But, uh, yeah, that's the best advice I can give you. There's no magic thing about that. Um, Mark Jones, do you ever purge your movie collection or sell off certain piles that maybe good movies but need to go somewhere else um if i have like you know upgraded i got rid of a lot uh, like 500 to 700 titles where i had upgraded and they didn't have any of the special features so i didn't feel a need to carry them hold on to them but typically a lot of the the boutique labels like the anchor bay or code red i'll keep most of those sitting around even if i upgrade i'll just box them up or put them in storage or somewhere like that but uh no like if i don't have the movie in any other format it's it's staying until it's upgraded so I don't really get rid of them. David Gibson, if there was a fire or you could only grab one piece of your collection, what would it be? At that point, fuck it. I mean, let it all burn. I got to restart or just stop collecting in general. If that happens, I'm going digital and just having like 100 movies that I absolutely adore. Uh, my Daughter of the Dead 4K set, fuck it, let's go with that. Or that that uh, that that folk horror box set because I haven't even opened it yet and it'd be a real shame for that to burn up without watching any of those. Let's go with that. Um, David Luton, if George Eastman were unavailable, who else would you choose to play you in a movie? Biopic of your life. But seriously, what is your favorite Martin Scorsese film and why? I don't have anybody I'd pick. Um, I, I have no fucking idea. Just sure find some weird actor that acts or looks like me or could do an impression of me and uh, they make me seem like a bigger asshole than I am, even though I'm fairly an asshole. So um, I, I would want classic George Eastman, but he's way bigger than me and way more studly than myself. But seriously, my favorite Morton Scorsese movie, it's going to be an answer you don't want to hear. It's probably going to be a typical Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, something like that. Those are all, those are so good. And uh, Taxi Driver, you know, I used to quote that movie. And it sounds bad quoting Taxi Driver, you know what I mean? Because um, uh, Travis is not necessarily a character you could ever quote. I mean, he's not, again, a character that uh, a lot of commentary people would say is not relatable, not likable. But he is to a huge part of society, or he represents a huge part of society. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, at times I think a lot of people do find him relatable when they're a certain age. Um, yeah, but anyways, it's got to be Taxi Driver. Just because, or Goodfellas. Good, probably Goodfellas, Goodfellas. Marco Vintian, Fred Durst, or Vince Vaughn, or both? Why not both? I don't love Fred Durst, but back in the day, everybody pump up break stuff and drive around and scream, sing it, and then realize years down the line, you're like, what the fuck is I doing? But uh, Vince Vaughn, I like Vince Vaughn. I know a lot of people don't like him, um, but I've always liked him. I, I, I like Vince Vaughn. It's funny. And I like seeing him in that uh, freaky movie. Because uh, uh, just... Just to be a little loose and just have fun with it. I liked it. Um, and Braun, Cell Block 99. Nick Moore. First first things first, the current incarnation of the Mr. Parker show is excellent. Truly, I'm not buttering you up. Well, maybe a little. As for my pick, uh, any question, the version of the show that we've all familiar with is very different from some of your older reviews. What made you want to change things up? 
Was this process difficult? Um, I wanted to change things up because I wanted it to uh, be more of an, a, port, a podcast format where it can all be in one weekly video. I like that idea. Just kind of make it one weekly thing and putting too many videos up randomly, sporadically. Um, like I said, it made me want to change it up because I wanted to make it a little bit more professional, question mark, <laughs> um, and in a podcast format so people can listen to it in an audio form. So it's just all around um, more of a mixed bag kind of show, a weekly show, one and done deal there. Putting it up once a week. I get more eyes on different movies too. Um, was the process difficult? Uh, no, not after I got the first few weeks. I kind of just fell into it, the editing process and everything like that. It's time consuming, but not difficult. Other questions. We've lost quite a few artists in the last couple of years. Who, whose passing really affected you? Uh, Norm MacDonald bummed me out. Like there's, I mean, back in the day, Romero, of course, when he died, I was very sad. Um, Tom Tolles, Nicholas Worth. These are years back though, but um, Norm MacDonald bummed me out. Because seeing a lot of videos of norm and like not knowing he had cancer then talking when he had that thing with david letterman and you're just like man just uh seen a lot of people die from your childhood norm norm mcdonald's the one that bummed me out uh so then we have how sleazy is too sleazy movie wise never too sleazy no but honestly there's points when i i'm just baffled how sleazy they get what was that white rose campus then everybody got raped that was fucking probably too sleazy but nah nothing's too sleazy I mean, it is, but it, it, it almost to the point where it becomes hilarious that they're doing it. You're just like, I can't believe this fucking exists. Are you at all excited about Shudder's Queer for Fear Doc when it's released? Um, why not? I like their horror noir, um, uh, the black kind of horror-oriented one. I thought that was really cool. Love that documentary. Um, maybe they can get some interesting uh, people to do some interviews and everything like that with horror noir. I love seeing fucking people in there like Tony Todd and Ken Foray and fucking uh, Keith David. Just a lot of people I really love talking about horror movies and different. I love watching film people talk about movies they're not in and their appreciation for them. So I love that. So maybe get some uh, like John Waters in here talking about more movies or something like that. So I'd really appreciate watching that. I don't mind. Um, uh, like I, I'm interested. I don't really get that excited anymore. I'm dead inside. If you haven't noticed, I'm grumpy old Dave. So, and have a great week. Thank you. So question of the week. I feel like I've asked this question before, but we're doing it again. Um, since I mentioned the serpent's tail from 94, what is a country that made a movie, uh, a country that makes movies that are just so very unapproachable for you, where you're just always confused. You can never relate. So I bring that up because, uh, the Serpent's Tale was very hard for me to get into. It just, I couldn't understand. Um, I will go with like a lot of Eastern European cinema in general. It's very hard for me to understand. Um, there's some great ones, of course, but um, uh, a lot of times I'm just baffled or lost and it's very hard for me to uh, grasp what the fuck is happening. So there we go. Let's hop into the update. Okay, let's hop into this update. Fairly decent size update here. First up is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on 4K. Um, this is just the theatrical cut of it. This is from Kino. A classic movie. Definitely wanted to uh, pick this up when I had a chance. I have not watched this movie in a very long time. Who doesn't love The Good, The Bad, and Ugly? Sergio Leone, one of the greatest spaghetti westerns of all time. And then we have Saving Private Ryan. Not watched this in years, but this is a great movie. Love this movie. Love the cast. Tom Hanks, Tom Sizemore, Matt Damon, Edward Burns. Fucking, um, geez. Uh, who else is in here? Vin Diesel is in here, actually. Uh, Giovanni Ribzy. There's a lot of other people. Ted Danson pops up in here. Paul Giamatti. Got a hitchhiker in my boot. Brother always liked that line. So this is a great warm film. That opening is intense. I just figured... Um, I heard a lot of good things about this 4K. So this is one that I was like, well, what's a movie that's going to blow you away in 4K? So it's going to be Saving Private Ryan. That's what I hear. So M. Butterfly, David Cronenberg. Uh, not seen this movie. Um, yeah, sounds very strange. Jeremy Irons. Um, 
Jeremy Irons is a great actor. David Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors. Don't know much about it. I know it's not a horror film, but uh, definitely going to pick up as much Cronenberg as I can. Then we have Caddyshack. I didn't have this. I was looking around. I was like, you know what? Uh, probably going to want to watch Caddyshack again shortly. I don't know if Jeremy's ever seen this. Maybe I'll pick this uh, uh, as a pick a movie for him. I don't know. This movie's fucking hilarious. Rodney Dangerfield is the funniest person ever. Also, obviously, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray. What was this, car- this guy? I don't remember this guy's name in the movie, but this is a classic. Uh, very funny movie. Very cheap Blu-ray. Just picked it up. Why the hell not? Um... Then we have uh, this Harryhausen Creature double feature, 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is a stop-motion classic. It came from Beneath the Sea. And this is one I think I know I've seen footage from. I don't know if I've ever seen the whole movie. But uh, Harryhausen's the best, and these are both Columbia Pictures, Mill Mill Creek. uh, Very cheap, picked it up. Just why not, right? Then we have some imports, Cold Eyes of Fear. Remember Redemption put this one out back in the day, and it went out of print, and this Blu-ray was super expensive. But So I just grabbed an import of it, uh, good price. This is Screenbound uh, Pictures. They put out a couple of uh, John Rowland's movies overseas. But I have um, oh, oh, uh, imported, I mean, from other company, uh, Screenbound. Jeez, I'm all over the place here. But, uh, yeah, so this is one that I didn't have. I do have all the other John Rowland movies from Redemption, so I, I didn't grab this one. This is not This is directed by, this is directed by Ennio G. Castellari. I didn't know that. Frank Wolf's in here, Fernando Ray. So, ah, uh, yeah. Kind of like a Jolly style film, I think. Then we have Separation. This is a good price from BFI. Um, yeah, this sounded interesting enough for the price, so I ended up grabbing it. Um, yeah, don't know much about it, but I was ordering a couple and I added it to the cart. Then we have Nightmares, a.k.a. Stage Fright. This is an Australian film, kind of a slasher from my understanding. Um, have the DVD from Severin, but, uh, oh, geez, there's some almost some bloody boobs on the back there. So this is an umbrella, and it's an exploitation classics. Uh, never seen it. This is the second time I bought the fucking thing and never watched. I really need to start watching these more often. I love watching movies. I watch a lot of movies, but there's still not enough time. Then Dave, stop buying them. Okay, so then we have Undead. Uh, this is uh, another um, Beyond Genres. This is a label that um, Umbrella's putting out. I have not watched this since it came out uh, in the States on DVD. I remember enjoying it. Fun splatter movie. Uh, zombie flick. I remember the guy has a big old fist, uh, a big old epic fight with a uh, fish in a fishing boat, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Then we have Bad Boy Bubby, which uh, I know the old Blue Underground Blu-ray went long out of print. I've never seen this movie. I'm really kind of excited to see it. It's supposed to be fucking bonkers. I've heard a lot about it. Um, hear a lot of uh, good things about it too. So Bad Boy Bubby on Blu-ray, bumping the camera there like you do when you're dumb. Then we have some imprint films here. The Gift, uh, Sam Raimi movie. Uh, great cast. Look at that. I don't know too much about this film. Um, yeah, I just know that it was a Sam Raimi film, and it's a kind of interesting kind of thriller horror movie. So I, so I ended up picking it up. I, this is like a forgotten Raimi movie for me. So I, I don't have... These are my first imprint films releases. Um, Australian Company, I believe. And uh, I, I hear good things. I know Brian Sauer always talks about them. And uh, I finally got a, some extra money. So I was like, well, let's just check out these. a couple of these. I imported them. A Reflection of Fear from 1972, another imprint films one. Um, yeah, I, I like their designs on their covers so far, but all, all these movies I'm not too familiar with. But uh, yeah, A Fragile World of a Disturbed Young Woman Living in a Remote New England House is Further Shaken When Her Father Turns Up with a Woman He Introduces as Her Fiance. As fiance. This sounds like almost like a thriller-style movie. Robert Shaw from Jaws, Sandra Locke, you know we go then we have the possession of joel delaney hear good things about this yeah, the old dvd so imprint put it out on blu-ray so good stuff um 
got an audio commentary by Lee Gambit. He does a lot of cool work. He's kind of the animals attacks guy, but I'm sure he loves all movies. Um, so yeah, cool. Then last of the imprint ones is Medusa Touch, Richard Burton, Lee Remick. Yeah, um, so this one I hear is pretty good as well. Sounds pretty crazy. Um, and I, wasn't there a Cat Ellinger? Yeah, Cat Ellinger and Lee Gammon together, uh, commentary. That's very cool. So pick this one up. Expect cool things. And then we have some DVDs here. Uh, what is this? Marinator? I, Mar, Mar, ha! <laughs> uh, Mary, uh, net, like a marionette, marionator. I, I don't know that word. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of some, some mariner, but it's a strange word. A doll horror movie. And it's going to be one of these words where I know exactly what it is when somebody else says it. But like when I go to look at it, I'm like, I don't know. I'm dumb. Just just taking dumb. But anyways, this is an elite pictures um, with uh, the tide point pictures down here. And uh, this is one I didn't have. And like I completely forgot. Like I was looking at it and a lot of these movies and like I was like, I should have that. Like I have a lot of these other companies movies never got another release. And it was relatively cheap. And I was just like, I'm going to I'm going to grab that. Well, it's still relatively cheap before it's long out of print or gets re-released probably. And this one here is an import, a DVD. It's Giorgio from 1994. Um, yeah, this got a lot of uh, positive reviews. Uh, so, so I picked it up for 94. I don't know if it's necessarily a straight-out horror film, but it sounds interesting enough. Fantasy horror. Um, really long film. But it has English subtitles, English friendly. So Giorgio. And that is the last. Uh, I guess we're going to hop back to the video. Okay, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Yeah.